0: That's enough of that. Let's just get this over with. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, hello everyone, and welcome back to Radio More Pork, the podcast that does all that stuff. Colin, what's that stuff that we do?
1: We go through 30 Pratchett's Discworld series one book at a time, rating, reviewing, uh, rambling, theorizing, analyzing, very occasionally ranting. Um, And today we are going to talk about Nightwatch. Today I am, as you may have gathered, Colm, and he is... Steve San, so-called because I'm in Japan. Hey, that rhymes. Is is the San not an honorific? Hmm? Yeah, it is, yeah. Yeah, are you (laughs) worthy of the honorific? Uh, I'm just owning it, you know. Okay. (laughs) I mean, I, I don't mean to... Like question you or undermine you, and but you do work with like a lot of children over in Japan, and I feel like it doesn't count if they call you Steve San because they probably have to. I mean, has anyone given you that title? That like,
0: oh, the children do not respect me enough to call me San. They don't even <laughs> call me Sensei. I I get a lot of just Steve, I just get Stebu, which is how they pronounce Steve. So. Yeah. But anyway, we're getting off topic. So today we are talking about Night Watch, which is a highly anticipated book I think in uh the Discworld uh entire bibliography. Very popular a lot long among a lot of fans and
1: among yeah. us too, actually. Yeah, yeah. Um uh I, I remember many, many moons ago, uh when we started college when I was in um I think it was like into cathy McLean's introduction to literature uh, seminar and we're just doing an icebreaker where we said you know what what her name was and what our favorite book was and at that point uh, i said mine was night watch um, oh, was is. scarily like you know 10 y- over 10 years ago now oh my god that's terrifying we shall see um how <laughs> how things have, have changed uh, since then
0: Yeah, it's funny because I remember you saying that like uh, Nightwatch is one of your favorites and at the time I very haphazardly said, I don't know, I don't know if it's one of the best. Um, I'll let you know in a little bit how much my opinion has changed. But for now, we should go over the general plot for our listeners just in case that they are unfamiliar with it or have forgotten how it goes in general. So uh, do you want to kick us off?
1: Yeah, so we we start with um, uh, Commander Vimes of the Ankh-Morpork City Watch. His wife, Lady Sybil, is um, expecting a baby. She's kind of just about due to, to go into labor when the book begins. Vimes is in a meeting with the patrician when he gets called off to chase down uh, Carcer Dunn, who's a kind of local um, psychopath. Who has killed uh, Sergeant Strong in the arm one of the Watchmen, and I, I think it's implied he I, I, it's that he's killed other Watchmen in the past as well, among a litany of other crimes. And as Vimes and the Watcher chase him, a massive storm breaks out. Uh, Vimes chases Carcer to the roof of the unseen University Library, and and then what happens? And then
0: uh, I believe once he catches him, he and Carcer fall through the roof of the observatory, observatory just as lightning hits, and Vimes is knocked unconscious, and when he regains consciousness, he appears to be in the past, uh, in a very old ankh pork, and he is arrested by his former self, his younger self, as he tries to break in, well, to try and gain entry into the university, because he assumes the best person to talk to about this kind of event are the wizards. Um, but yeah, his younger self uh, arrests him, knocks him out, and puts him into a jail cell, where he wakes up adjacent to carcer who manages to get out of the cell very quickly because
1: uh let me see how he, he bribes the, the uh what, yes, um, I, I don't just... it's it's snouty the jailer let's go on i don't know if it's snouty he bribes but he says he like you know when he was arrested he gave a little something to uh whoever it was who arrested him that's right yes yeah and, and, uh, uh, sorry go ahead her Vimes is taken to uh, see Captain Tilden um, up the watch uh, he claims his name is John Keel, who was his old mentor when, when he began in the Watch. And I, sorry, we should have said that the the, the present of the book at the beginning is set on the 25th of May, which is the anniversary of an event that's uh, kind of hinted at at the start, that Vimes, uh, Colon, Nobby, Dibbler, Red Shoe, and strangely Veterinary all wear a lilac plume to commemorate it. We see uh, Colon, Nobby, um, and Dibbler visiting the graves of Several people, including one John Keel. Um, so mm. when Vimes is back in the past and, and it's, the name's been in his head because it's an anniversary, he says his name's John Keel. Tilden says John Keel's been killed and accuses Vimes of doing it. And then time stops just as Stouty grabs hold of a small bald monk that's sweeping up outside.
0: Who happens to be uh, someone that we've come across before in a previous book, one time monk Luzi, who has basically manipulated time at the moment to allow for two parallel timelines to exist. The previous timeline, which is what had actually happened, and the current timeline is where some things have changed, which is essentially caused by Carcer and Vimes appearing in the past. So Lucy is allowing this to happen. Because he feels that he, well, basically that he owes it to Vimes to let him try and write what has happened and try to bring Carcer to justice. Uh, So he explains this to Vimes using a lot of very simplistic uh, terminology because he thinks that Vimes would not be able to understand most of it. Essentially telling him that this is the case. So... He tells him that Vimes has to stay there to try and bring Carcer back because if he doesn't, he has to imagine what Carcer could do to, the, to his future if he is allowed to stay in the he, past. He also
1: mentions that Carcer, uh, when, when John Keel in the original timeline, when he arrived in ankh Park from Pseudopolis, two fellas tried to rob him and he fought them off. And in this uh, timeline, Carcer was with the two lads and they ended up killing Keel. Um, hence why uh, Tilden reported him as dead. So he says, like, not only is there the threat if Vimes goes back to the uh, his present now of the past being distorted by Carcer's presence, there is also the worry that young Sam Vimes will have learned uh, coppering through people like uh, Corporal Quirk and Sergeant Knock mm. and a uh, very young Green uh, Lance Constable Colon. Um, so Vimes essentially has to go back to catch Carcer and preserve things, but also to set his younger self on roughly the right path. And and the monks going kind to of say they can only give him a few days before having to, to bring him back. Uh, so it seems like his object is going to be to preserve things uh, in as much as they, you know, uh, actually happened. Um, <clears throat> so when he gets back to when uh, the history monks let him back, to the, uh, the flow of time he manages to, to wow Tilden and convince him that he actually is John Keel he gets the rank sergeant at arms mm-hmm. um, which seems to be as far as we can get around. it's like above sergeant but below captain
0: so at that point he kind of goes in to try and clean up the watch because uh, he's been learning that uh, the night watch at, at this point have been handing over people to the unmentionables a rather uh Horrible group of people who are torturing people under the um, because of the paranoid nature of Lord uh, Winder. I'm sorry, I'm blanking on his name now. Lord Winder, Winder, that's it. Yes, Lord Winder.
1: Who? Yeah, we, uh, we get a we get a kind of picture of old Ankh Morpork, and it's sort of been implied in the earlier books. There'd be like. Uh, particularly the early earlier watchbooks when, when they tend to revolve around plots to topple or replace Vetinari they allude to previous patricians and how you know Vetinari has his faults but he, he's a massive improvement on like Mad Lord Snapcase and Loony Lord Winder and things like that so, so we know, we've had this impression that Ankh-Morpark used to be a lot worse off um, but this really sets the scene of it being a you know, police state of sorts it's like mm. Stalin's Russia um, uh, yeah, it's,
0: it's funny that you say that. I Germany. actually have that written down somewhere here. It's like, it's like Stalin's Russia. Like, I have that written down in my notebook
1: at the moment. But Did, um, did you see um, The Death of Stalin, the Armando Iannucci film? Yeah,
0: exactly. It reminded me a lot of, of
1: that, particularly like the grimmer bits where you just see these you know, um, KGB or what, what NKVD is, they would have been then breaking into people's houses and uh dragging people off really randomly or you know people having to denounce their loved ones to in order to not be caught themselves
0: yeah 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 it me a lot of that but uh, so Vimes he goes in to basically clean up the watch house because people have just been haphazardly giving people up to the unmentionables without really a care in the world like uh, f- with no guilty conscience or anything so he comes in to clean all this up and basically set a better example uh he brings young sam on um uh a patrol uh to kind of teach him some of the ropes and when he catches a few people on uh who have they've broken the curfew which is in place at the moment so he puts them into uh the carriage among them are lady palm who uh, saved him when he first arrived into the past, and she has some things to say about him capturing them. But basically, he brings them all the way up to the Unmentionables, and he's about to give them until he asks for a receipt for the people he hands to them. At which point, the unmention- Unmentionables themselves, or at least the guard on patrol, he refuses to do that, just saying, No, Henry the not- Hamster. Hmm?
1: Henry the Hamster, that's the name of the particularly Unmentionable, working that night. <laughs> yeah, um, actually, it's interesting that we, uh, like, he begins with the, um, you know, purpose of maintaining the timeline and getting Carcer. So mm. presumably by just acting as much like Keel as he can. Mm. But be- it, it, I, 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 because he he knows he's going back to these times that will erupt into revolution, it it sort of. You, you he later um sort of can't resist uh interfering in some way to save lives like he ends up making sure this uh what was historically known as the Morphic Street conspiracy which was this meeting of would-be revolutionaries that was broken up and by the unmentionables everyone was arrested he ensures all of those people get away uh, and he he in his head he definitely thinks of this as a you know him interfering with the timeline and he couldn't resist and now what's going to go wrong it's sort of ambiguous as to like the thing the business you were just mentioning when when he goes and he's got a lot of people in the hurry up wagon and he brings them to the um cable street and and then well it's it's i think ambiguous as to whether keeled on that in the original timeline because I, mm. He he never reflects on it, but at the same time he isn't. I don't think at that point he's thinking like, "Oh, I'm trying to spanner in the works of history," like he later does. Uh, yeah. So it's just it's an interesting thing as to like where uh, Vimes's sort of performance as Keel and Vimes as this new figure in this period of history uh, yeah. diverges from one another. It, it, you know, or, uh, that's that's left up in the air. So anyway, he do he does he is sort of trying to spanner in the works of the unmentionables because of his awareness of this upcoming revolution that will see winder toppled he's quite cynical about the revolution you know Snapcase, who replaces winder will ultimately be no better um, and this mm. brings him into the circle of some of the revolutionaries uh that, that include dibbler and rosie pam and her uh um real actual uh seamstress you no know, wink wink nudge nudging uh sandra batty <laughs> um, And their sort of uh, leader, I suppose, and, you know, one of the chief organizers of the revolution, um, Madame uh, Roberta Messerol, who's uh, veterinary's aunt. We see a young veterinary at the the Assassin's Guild at this point, and he kind of rejects their offer to join their um, conspiracy, but he sort of ends up helping them anyway.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, like, he... Uh, and just on a side note, it's a real fan service moment, I think, when uh, we see Vetinari in the Assassin's School, because we always hear about how uh, Vetinari, he went to school... At the, he went to the Assassin's School, and it's like, yeah, that fits in perfectly with veterinary's timeline, but to actually see a young Vetinari at play is just... Yeah, it's it's great. But we'll come back to that later. But, um, yeah, he tries... He yeah. basically... He, He's trying to maintain the peace when things go a bit sour. Uh, When the uprising does eventually begin, he makes a point to show that uh, he and his guards are literally just there to maintain the peace. They are not, uh, you know, bearing arms. They are not, like, prepared to defend themselves. They are just there to be on patrol. And their watch house is the only one that doesn't get, like, fiercely ransacked compared to the other ones. Uh, and this continues to escalate until eventually a barricade needs to be erected. Um,
1: at, at this point, too, uh, Captain Tilden is relieved of his duties as, as captain of the. Um, uh, Streak on Mine Road is, is the watch house he's in uh, this, mm. this time, isn't it? And yes. The, the one that was around Guards Guards and subsequently burnt by the uh, dragon. But Tilden is relieved of his duties and he is replaced by uh, Rust who were uh, Lord Rust, I don't know if he's Lord at this point, but um, Ronald Rust, who are familiar with from from Jingo and uh,
0: mm-hmm. other
1: books. Um, and, it, and Vimes thinks about how the, uh, his interference and possibly carcers is changing history at this point, because he remembers that it wasn't Rust who replaced Tilden in the original timeline. Yeah. And uh, Rust orders uh, Vimes and his men to dismantle the barricade and start killing the uh, civilians behind it. So instead, Vimes... Um, uh, knocks Rust unconscious and takes command as Rust uh, thrown in the cells. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he he ends up kind of taking the side of the people behind the barricade. He orders them to dismantle it, but then to rebuild it in a more uh, strategic place. Um, and they sort of end up, all of this fighting's going on, they're taking over various bits of the city while uh, incompetently commanded or bloodthirsty um, soldiers are having skirmishes around at other parts. And while all this is going on, there's like a party going on at Patrician's Palace. And I, and I love that. Um, we will get into it later. But I just love that juxtaposition of this is like we know. Not even when we finish the book, we know from from what volumes. When Vimes is thinking of her history, and then we notice it's this period of revolution and uh, blood in the streets. And while that's happening, there's a party going on at the palace. Yeah, um, yeah. What before,
0: like uh, things really uh, begin to pick up. Uh, Vimes and his group of watchmen also infiltrate the Unmentionable's uh, headquarters in order to release all the people that they have imprisoned there and who they have been torturing and interrogating uh, for essentially no reason. And it's one of the most horrific moments in the entire Discworld saga, I think, the moment when they discover all of the victims who have been there and how grim it is. But essentially they go in... When he treads uh, on a
1: toot. Huh? You know, I think Vimes steps on something and looks down and it's a toot. Yeah, that detail it's details.
0: But he goes in and basically uh, he releases all the prisoners and he stops him his younger self from murdering uh, the interrogator uh, to make sure that he doesn't become something much worse further down the line because if he allows young Sam to do that obviously he will basically become a vigilante not unlike Carcer who can just do what he likes um but while he's there uh there, he also sets the building on fire. Way, he, once he releases everybody, he goes back outside, throws a Molotov cocktail into the building, set it on fire, and that's when uh, young Sam says, Oh, that's why you didn't want me to kill the executioner. You wanted him to burn alive because he ties him up beforehand. Yeah, And Sam is basically like, Oh, shit, okay, I have to go in and untie his straps, give him a chance at least. And he does that, but while he's there, Captain Swing, the head of the Unmentionables, uh, ambushes a him. Marvelous um, villain. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So he ambushes him, and they have a bit of a scuffle. Which vines emerges from Victorious. He kills uh, Swing, and he comes back out, and then they go back to setting up the um, the barricades. So, you want to continue from there?
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, they, they, so they set up barricades, and then um, there's like uh, a lot of fighting going um, going on. There's like a sort of siege tower thing. The The um, forces of the city bring down to dismantle it, but Vimes manages to stop that. Also, at at this point, Vimes knows how the barricades were defeated in the original timeline. Oh, Oh, yes. And because of that, he uh, then makes adjustments for, um, like, he knows where the soldiers are going to sneak around and catch him in the rear, so he makes adjustments for that. and he's thinking at the same time about, like, like young Sam, who's very idealistic, saying, oh, what if we win? And he's thinking, oh, no, we can't win. And then he begins to think, oh, well, maybe, you know, we can, because I know Winder's going to die. And he begins thinking that if they do win, he won't have a future to go back to, because he'll have so irrevocably changed the past. But he resolves that he can't not do everything he can to say to the people there. Even if it means he doesn't have a future, um, and we'll we'll get back to that bit uh, in due time because it's absolutely sensational. But uh, what, another uh, kind of further spanner in the works, we've got more spanners than the toolbox here, is Carcer also knows, so he goes to the fellows who are commanding the uh, the like attacks and skirmishes against the barricades, and he advises them to change their tactics from what they would have done in the original timeline. That he knows Vimes is going to anticipate, uh, mm. so some of the lads end up dying anyway. I think first of all, like Ball is killed when a, a hook a grappling hook comes over and and impales him. Mm. Um, And then Winder is killed at this party when we see kind of uh, madams politicking at play as she sort of distracts any people who are, uh, like basically isolates any people who are pro-Winder and kind of, um, I suppose, indoctrinates or at least, uh, you know, makes some attempts to win over any people who are wavering while most of the party are people who are part of the conspiracy and are against Winder. The actual plan to kill him is veterinary, Um, Mm. uh, the assassins have been very unsuccessful we're told in trying to get to Winder because he's so paranoid Um, Vetinari eventually gets all the way in and it's so dreamlike because everyone in the party who's now largely part of the conspiracy are ignoring the presence of this obvious assassin walking up to Winder before Vetinari can even touch him Winder presumably has a heart attack and dies of fear because he can't believe how dreamlike it it all is Um, so then Snapcase is installed as the patrician uh, but Snapgate sees Keel as a bit of a loose cannon, um, who he can't have around, uh, and then orders that despite a general amnesty being called and into the fighting, he sends some men around, led by Carcer and uh, containing some of the lads, Vimes, Axe from the Watch, um, Sergeant Knock, and Corporal Quirk, who we, we later see, we will we, we earlier see later see in Men at Arms, um, and then some, of the, some of the other kind of uh, like little side uh, baddies or mooks. Mm. And um, so they're sent to kill uh, Vimes and his his men. Um, the Vimes and his men manage to flee into a shop. They flee into an alley. Vimes is trying to convince them to disperse because you know he knows the guys just want him. They won't disperse. And, and what happens next? Uh,
0: so at this point, uh, they realise there's just too many people there. So they need to find have a way to identify themselves. So that's why. They decide, they notice that there are some plumes of lavender directly above their heads while they're having this discussion. Says, well, what if we have these plumes of lavender in our like, you know, our helmets lilac. or whatever? That way lilac, sorry, yes, not lavender, lilac. Beg your pardon. So yes, they decide to put these lilac flowers into their helmets so they'll be able to distinguish their own men from the hundreds of other men who are there in this massive skirmish. And this is when Vimes know this is the beginning of the end. This is when everybody uh, kind of Meets their maker, so to speak, because as they're running away, they they have a bit of a twisty, turny run through the alleyways. But eventually they become cornered by Carter and his men. And then there's this nitty gritty, horrible little scrap between all the men in which all the people who originally had died in the original timeline die again in this current timeline And uh, it all seems to be going pretty horribly But in a very tranquil moment Where just before, just beforehand sorry, uh, Vimes uh, time freezes And he speaks to C again To uh, basically tell him Okay you've done all that you can do We can send you back now But you need to know You need to be able to catch Karser Before we can send you back Otherwise he stays here And that's exactly what he does Once time unfreezes He makes an absolute break for Carser Grabs him and tells him he's
1: nicked and then next thing you know and he goes back into place the monks leave the body of the original keel there yes. after he's left so um, as far as his men can see he's been killed um, although there was no actual death blow um, so he goes back uh, he ends up in Unseen University he Naked. gets really worried because he remembers when him and Carcer were fighting on the roof Carcer said I can see your house from here uh, he's still naked at this point because all of his armour and, and clothes were left in the past because that's where they belong so he, he um, uh, very hurriedly runs, runs home uh, I, w- once he gets home Carcer isn't there but he gathers from, from Willikens the butler that there's some complications in a pregnancy uh, of Sybil in the labour rather um, so at this point um, our Chancellor Riculli has arrived on a broomstick he gives Vimes a lift to the house of Doctor Lawn, who was the doctor who put him up in the past, Vimes very quickly and bluntly comes clean with Lawn, um, you know, who recognizes him from the past, and mm-hmm. Vimes knows uh, from having talked to Lawn in the past that he's actually uh, an, an expert in the delivery room. So he brings Lawn to his house. Lawn helps successfully deliver the baby, and um, who Sybil instantly names Sam. He's called mm-hmm. Sam. Sam, and no arguments. <laughs> Vimes now, at last clothed, uh, goes to visit the grave of John Keel uh, where he's attacked by Carcer. Yeah. Um, and he he has a moment during the fight where he wants to kill Carcer, but he manages to um, resist beast. that urge. Yeah, and, and, and just, <laughs> just arrest him instead. There's a wonderful part where he talks about young Sam looking at him across history, and it's sort of at that point then conflating his younger self with his newborn son. Mm. Um. So he, he gets carcer and a veterinary steps out of the shadows uh, Veterinary offers to, to make a memorial to the, the man who died on the glorious 25th of May and Vimes turns it down and says you can't give him anything else Veterinary then reveals he's figured out that Vimes was Keel because he arrived he was sent by uh, Madam to to warn keel once Snapcase said I'd uh, send a man to kill him and when he arrived he saw in his words what was it like a man named Keel disappear and then appear dead and uh, mm. I, I put it down as half a mystery and today I have found the other half um, <laughs> so, and then he, and so he also reveals he, he killed a few of Carcer's men when he was there but also that once Vimes' men saw that uh, he was dead or Akil like, was dead they fought like tigers and you know, despite their losses and lack of numbers managed to uh, disperse and destroy the rest of Carcer's men uh, at that point, Vimes um, turns down the chance of a meeting with Vetinari. But Veterinary oh yeah, offers to reopen the old watch house in Treacle Mine Road. Um, and Vimes accepts. The watch
0: house in Treacle Mine Road that uh, we haven't
1: seen since
0: uh, Guards Guards because it gets burned down by the dragon in that one. So it's it's a nice kind of uh, you know full circle kind yeah. of event for that for, to bring back in. But yeah, uh, so veterinary offers to give him that, and uh, Vimes very begrudgingly accepts. Not one to really be happy uh, with uh, the all the gifts that veterinary bestows upon him. So after that, uh, he brings Carcer back to back to the brig, basically, and that's it. That's the end. of Yeah, he just
1: goes back home to uh, as his as he says see his family, and that's Mm. it. Yeah. Um. Do you know
0: the Do you know the funny thing about Sam or uh, Vaim's story is that in nearly every subsequent book, you kind of feel like this feels like the natural end of his story. But Terry Pratchett always manages to push it a little further every time. Like, I think uh, Feet of Clay, we kind of feel like, oh, he's like, he's retired now. Like, it's all good. It's good now. He's like a duke and an ambassador. So like, you know, that's kind of the end of him as a watchman. But then we go on to the fifth elephant, which you know, we mark down as the best uh, Vine story by far. And we're like, oh my God, this is amazing. And like, okay, now surely he's reached his zenith. Like it can't get any better than this. And then we have this book, which uh, is a bit yeah, like the yeah. Mad Max Fury Road of like sequels. And that, like, you know, <laughs> just when you think it can't get any better, it kind of comes back and it's like, it's, It's something that you didn't even know you wanted, but it's so good when like you finally get it. I think I'm going to make no secret of I really, really enjoyed reading this book. I remember I told you that I was a little bit under the first time I read. I was like, oh, it's fine. But reading it again, a lot more of the nuance of the novel kind of jumped out at me. And I really, really enjoyed it. I'm presuming. Do you feel the same or
1: Yeah, well well um the full disclosure, uh like when I when I said in, uh, in in that um introduction to literature class long long ago that it was my favorite book, I never actually read it at that point. I just heard the audiobook, um, and not <laughs> only the audio book, the abridged audiobook, uh which I, I re listened to before recording this because uh owing to well, our, our listeners will well know when they listen to this we uh, a couple of factors in our professional and personal lives saw this episode delay, so I had actually it's, it's been a long time since I went like when I read this over a month ago maybe yeah for for this episode so I yeah, I listened to it again as a refresher and um, so this was actually my first time reading the full thing and yeah yeah just loved it uh, what what I was struck by um, first of all was that I remember Rose telling me I, th- I think she says it in our first episode on Color Magic when we talk about how we got into this world that this was the first book Discord book she had read. Wow. And, and I was really surprised because I had thought, like, oh, well, it's one that really relies on you knowing Vimes, knowing the watch, knowing Act Park, and getting much more out of it. And, I mean, that's probably true in a sense that I think particularly now doing it for the podcast, reading them in order, I do get a lot out of seeing these characters at this point having, you know, these settings, having seen them so much before. But I think, sort of similar to Lords and Ladies, this really builds wonderfully on the previous watchbooks. Like, I think we're about maybe 50 pages in before Vimes goes back in time, maybe a little more. And in those 50 pages, it just does a really good job of establishing Vimes' role in the city, of establishing the watch-supporting cast. You know, we see a little bit from Kara and Achiri and Detritus and Angua and and Veterinary, for that matter. Uh, Ancola and Nobby, of course, and Dibbler. And rage, and you know, we get a little, but you know, like generally with those characters, what we uh, the little we do get is like very colorful, very indicative of them as characters, like. Colin and uh, Nobby seen at the grave or Donby offers to rob a few flowers off one of the other graves and like a carrot spit when he's talking to uh, Ponder just after they've disappeared in time and he's just understanding all of what Ponder's saying and Ponder's getting really annoyed because he's expecting that Obi, you know, he's trying to explain but he's expecting that he won't understand um, and <laughs> It, it just does a really good job of establishing the, the context and the relationship of, of the police and the city as well, of, of the work they do, and particularly the fact that you have Carcer killing a, a kind of background character, like Strong in the Arm was never the most prominent, but he has been mentioned in the previous books, I think maybe yeah, he had a line or yeah. two here and there, so he, he's sort of like, like a fixture, albeit a, you know, a background fixture, so it, it's sort of surprising that not only is he killed, he's killed off page, um, mm. and this really gives us a sense of like, coppering in Ankh-Morpork being a dangerous job. You know, we talked about particularly with something like uh, The Last Hero, which is sort of a farewell to the old, wild Discworld of the the Discworld getting sort of safer, and particularly Ankh-Morpork getting safer, and part of that is inevitable as the watch gets better at its job, you know, it it will be. Um, But it it does a good job of, I suppose, uh, reminding you of that sense of danger that's going to be there when you're a policeman, police woman, uh, police person in a city like Ankh-Morpork, there's something about it uh, ha- like uh, Carcerus is just, just common tug or psychopath who does this as a like a an inciting event in a novel off page rather than it being the main thing you know what I mean mm, Like he- yeah. you almost get the sense with some of the earlier ones like the big threats like you know, the dragon or the gunman in uh, Men-at-Arms or, you know, the, the killer golem in Feet of Clay, that these are obviously big threatening events for the watch, but that in between things largely tick away, you know, mm. uh, somewhat like constructively and manageably. And here we're sort of reminded of like not every day is a struggle and a battle, even as they do get better and more well-resourced. Yeah,
0: exactly. And like a lot of that, I think, is down to just the structure of that entire chase scene where they're going over the rooftops it's just a very well put together section of the book it's uh, you know it's genuinely genuinely exciting because there's a lot of elements at play there you've got Boogie Swires up in the sky you've got Carrot which Vimes starts worrying about Carrot being over there and oh my god he's visible but he's also worrying about his own skin just in case Carson jumps out at him and if he doesn't Mm -hmm. see him he might see Carrot and there's also the fact that um, you know Detritus might be coming in and he might accidentally blow the entire lot of them up with his gigantic crossbow and while all this is happening Vimes is also thinking about the birth of his child at home. So there's a lot of elements at play and they're all very, very well balanced, which... Uh, just like from a writer's perspective, I just think that's a really, really well put together section. But do you know what really struck me about the book is like, like you were saying from the the last hero, that was kind of a farewell of the sword and sorcery um, aspect of these books, not complete farewell, but showing like a noticeable change in tone and general focus. This is the least fantastical book that of the entire Discworld series we've read so far, like by a yeah. large margin. Yeah. Like, I mean, obviously, at the start, you do have detritus, and like you've got boogie swires, and you've got like dwarves, and you know all that sort of thing. But once they go back into the past, it could. Ascend- I mean, and if you take out the time travel, obviously, it could easily just be like a political thriller of sorts because you know it's just it's just like solid character writing with. There's almost no magic, obviously. Again, with the exception of the time travel, but like that just happens to serve the story that's happening here. So it's yeah, it's. Yeah it's a big shift and one that's not entirely unwelcome at all like i mean i say not entirely yeah. unwelcome it's very much welcome because it's it's so different it's a breath of fresh air i think after everything that we've seen before like i mean the last hero i know it was your first time reading it and you enjoyed it a lot more than i did i think maybe just because i'd read it a few times but it's a it's a very appropriate farewell, but I also felt like it was kind of like the last gasp after a long race. And I was kind of like, I'd like something new now. And this is very much the something new that I'm kind of looking for. It was, it was fresh, which it, it made Terry Pratchett really, really fresh again. And I know this is coming from someone who just happens to have been reading nothing but Terry Pratchett for a long time and like, you know, one book after another. But chronologically, this is very much a breath of fresh air, I have to say.
1: Yeah, and, and it's amazing how well it works within the context of, like, I mean, Discworld's always had a very flexible continuity, but mm. how it works within what's been established. Like, you can imagine, I mean, uh, the thread of influences of sort of, like, early 19th nineteenth century revolutionary periods with, like, mm. uh, Dolly Sisters being, like, Peter Liu, and I think Captain Swing, the name, is a reference to, like, a sort of a band of anarchist Luddites, Um So you can imagine him getting really interested in all this stuff and wanting to do a book about it and that necessarily not maybe the the fantasy elements being an awkward fit for that. And then, you know... How would you put it? Like, like there could be very clumsy ways of just going about shooing those fantasy elements under the carpet for the duration of this book. But it plays in so well because we're told in the earlier books how, like, the immigration of trolls and dwarves and the more like fantastical races to the city is something that's very much uh, come in, uh, into play in a big way under veterinary's reign as patrician. So mm. when you go back. Uh, before that it makes sense that there isn't as much of it but then that in itself then plays into the social commentary of it because you see this much more grim and gray less fantastical like more pork you know people like i think even 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 colon back in the past being like really openly racist against dwarves Um, Yeah, yeah so like that plays up to this sense of yeah of this darker uh more repressive um less open-minded version of ang pork while also allowing him to play out these this as you said a like kind of fresher uh crime political thriller setting rather than having to um you know deal with the fantastic elements he's, he's integrated into the series over over the years
0: yeah uh, absolutely yeah and it's it's a great um obviously this is something i'll always come back to but like it works very well for like Vimes as a character as well because, as we said before, he's had a really interesting arc. It just gets like I, I personally, I've just found it to be getting better and better. He's always been my most, uh, he my most, the character that I've been most fascinated with. But what's really good about this book is that. Here, we're kind of seeing a Vimes who's kind of reflecting on his entire past, in a way. Like, you know, whereas every other book, it kind of feels like he's learning something new, he's learning something new, or, like, uh, he has to learn to accept, I don't know, uh, certain parts of his own, you know, ideologies and his own morality. Here, it's kind of a review crash course of that because he's, like, come face-to-face with, like, the pure version of himself, and in order to make, you know, that version older version or the younger version of himself become the version he is now he has to stay true to his actual values he can't like allow himself to be more than what he was at that point you know he it's a very careful balancing act and we do see other aspects of his character here that we haven't seen before like we do see a very vulnerable vimes when he first arrives in the past which i thought was really interesting like there's points where he seems like very very broken like there's there's one moment I think when he's talking to um I think it's when he's talking to Lucy, and he just says very quietly almost in a whisper "Is like I just want to go home and like he said there's left there's a line that says he hadn't he what was it he hadn't been asleep for the past 12 hours he'd just been recovering you know so like yeah. he, he isn't well rested and he's just he's being pushed very very far here and this gets even better towards the end when he's starting to question like reality itself, like you know he's wondering whether the past slash future basically his old life, whether or not it exists at all because mm-hmm. he's got nothing to hold on to there, nothing to guarantee that it's real and true, and that really puts him in a state of primal like fear almost like well not fear per se, but definitely primal panic that, you know, he's kind of coming to terms with the idea that he might lose everything. And that's that's a really mm-hmm. interesting state to see him in. Because we've had him before where he's he's had his life threatened, but never his entire legacy, so to speak, threatened, you know? So it's it's an interesting place to put him in.
1: Yeah, yeah. And it's wonderfully contrasted with um The very start of the, the book is, in the, the opening line, Sam Vime sighed when he heard the scream. But he finished shaving before he did anything about it. And you have that kind of... uh, I I don't think it's even an attempt on his life. That's the thing. Like, the the assassins, like Vetinari, they've taken him off the register. But uh, they're sort of sent... They know how cautious he is, so they sent young assassins for training around to <laughs> <hands laughs> to sort of do a I don't know like like a mock uh, you know would be assassination, but like this is so blasé to him at this point, you know like mm. he's he's ensconced in this place, starved. I mean that's just such a good first line. Again, going back to this idea that where while builds on earlier. Uh, Discworld and just watch books So well Where does your first one Like that That line's gonna hook you You know mm, um, Yeah But he, he's just ensconced so firmly And like he has Like the Riches And power And a wife who loves him you know, and this like organization that he's at the head at that is like really well resourced, increasingly well respected. You know, assassins, you know, whatever, like like shrugs him off. You know, water up mm-hmm. the duck's back. So to go from that to this, like he's stripped of all his resources, all his friends, um, even even the kind of like the, the uh, social protections he yeah, has. Like the idea of it, like I think when he goes back to the past and he's um, talking to uh, Ro- uh, Rosie, Pam, and Dr. Lawn. And he says, "You don't know me," and he thinks everyone knew Vimes. Uh, <laughs> so he's even stripped of like that, both that sense of like his his rep, it being able to use his reputation in the way they did. Like whether it's something as huge as the assassins not even considering him a target anymore because he's too valuable, or whether it's just him being able to kind of force his way around through reputation, through force of uh, you know personality and people's expectation of that. That like that's all completely gone. And we have talked before about how the. the as he's had this upward trajectory, the previous books have treaded a thin line in keeping him a sort of underdog and not making him seem like a bully. And, like, the fifth elephant uh, just about manages that by, um, like, not making him seem like a kind of ankh or cultural imperialist by stripping him of his support system and putting an emphasis on, like, survival and justice over murders rather than him, you know, just, like... Uh, ramrodding through Angkor Park values, and in fact has him questioning ankh Park values. And now, what just does this even more so? Um, I think it also questions like w- we said the tension with him is this idea of like, oh, you know, his, his appeal is kind of being an underdog. But increasingly, as he as he wins and gets rewarded, he's less and less of an underdog. But he continues to think of himself like that, and you you get good moments throughout uh, the watchbooks like you know the culture clash between him and the, the nobles like that parody and jingo you know when he's kind of being uh just in jingo or feet of clay where he's sort of taking a piss out of the other nobles by like spreading off really racist stuff about trolls and, and dwarves like the most outrageous stuff he can think of and they're all saying oh yes yes, yes. um but it, it is a tricky thing to sustain and here we have him questioning it like I think it's on like he's having this nostalgia for his early days of coppering that has got to be completely undercut by when he goes back and sees how horrible they were and uh, mm. I just want to quote this bit here um, what, when did I last go on patrol last week last month and it's never a proper control, uh, patrol because the sergeants make damn sure everyone knows. I at the building and every damn constable reeks of armour polish and I had a shave by the time I get there even if I nip down the back streets. And that thought, at least, was freighted with a little pride because it showed he didn't employ stupid sergeants. I never stand <laughs> all night in the rain or fight for my life rolling in a gutter with some tug and I never move above a walk. That's all I've been taken away. And for what? Comfort, power, money and a wonderful wife. Uh... Which was a good thing, of course, but even so, damn, <laughs> you know, like he's he's kind of questioning. He's like, this nostalgia I'm feeling, this feeling of being like, you know, an underdog, is increasingly treadbare and questionable. And, you know, and he does, I think he, should, he like he. He talks about the Sammies, the, the policemen who are trained up in Ankh-Morpork and go elsewhere. And he's, he's sort of proud of them. So yeah. even if he has these complaints about his current position, he's very proud of of what he's got. And I think when he when he goes back to the old watch um, as well, he sort of admits there probably isn't enough paperwork, which is something he's discussed with in the, the modern day. And then he uses that, like carrot-like adherence to procedure and doing things by the book to mess with the unmentionables and the other uh, you know the other kind of um, malfeasant corrupt uh, forces in the the Ankh-Morpork past so he's sort of balancing up like not only is the book doing it but he as a character is realising yeah, this uh, this nostalgia, and and the great thing too is it isn't one way either. Like it isn't just him going back and being like, I was completely wrong to miss all of this. Because oh God, he, yeah. He really revels in some of it, but at the same time can see um, how much worse off it is than than the present day. Like More So yeah, just the way it handles his journey as a character, the contradictions and in how he feels about his his place and uh, where he's got and where where he's come from. It's just just wonderful.
0: It's, it's actually, it's a really good example, like a very solid example of the hero's journey, actually, that he goes on in that, like, yeah, at the start, he kind of start, he's kind of thrown himself into like a very uncomfortable situation when he goes into the past, he's disorientated and uncomfortable. Then, like you said, yeah, like there's all these things that he had before have been stripped away, but as like, has been established in previous books and at the start of this one, he's very lethargic about all the privilege he has. He's, he's nostalgic for the old times when he went on patrol and he did all these things. And he kind of rises to that. Like, Yeah, he does do things by the book, like according to the way Carrot used to do it. But he's also kind of underhanded in that sneaky way that Vimes used to be like. Like at uh, that moment mm-hmm. where uh, the... Uh, what, what was the thing that uh, was stolen from the captain? The
1: silver or something? Oh... Yeah, it, it was, it was like, a, like a paperweight or a cigarette case, yeah. or some kind of commemorative thing he got from his regiment because he, Captain Tilden used to be in the military. Um, That's it, yeah. Yeah, stolen and planted in his locker by, by the other lads. But
0: he's very much aware of this because he knows that this is the kind of backhanded stuff that goes on in the wash. And you can see him very much in his element breaking into Treacle Mine Road in like through the window that he knew was like, you know, had the rusty hinge or whatever. And, uh, you know, taking the, th- the thing out, putting it into like the other person's locker and all that. He's he and there's this great moment where he's just like, a, I think it's just after he's um brought the hurry up wagon to the unmentionables and like he tries to give the tomb says okay once you give us a receipt and they're like no 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 and uh he basically he's able to let those people go and there's this triumphant moment where he's just like it feels good you know to be back on patrol and like i've got these thin thin boots so i can tell where i am in the city and like yeah it's old vines back again like that's that halfway point where he's like overcome the obstacles But then, of course, it sinks back down again when he gets back to the idea that, like, yeah, he's gained something out of this, but he's given up so much. And, like, the question is that plagues the entire second half of the book is, you know, like, how much would Vimes be willing to give up and would he be willing to give up what he had before to go back to this old style of uh you know policing like is it yeah. worth it because you know generally speaking he would always say yes of course I would you know of course I want to be married to Sybil I want to have like the city being as well policed as it is but when he's thinking of like all the things to, to go back to there's that moment where like uh what was it uh Oh, I can't can't remember the context of it but he's trying to think of reasons to go back and he thinks of Sybil like third or fourth and like you know he has that moment like where he catches himself wow I didn't think of Sybil until then Mm -hmm. like how high is she in my priorities and that's really interesting because you know if you're ever writing a hero like typically most writers would be like oh the love interest of course she's at the top of my priority list and this is something that kind of hangs in the book the fact that like yeah everyone knows that Sam loves Sybil that's blatantly obvious because of a There's that test that Lucy plays on him, like where he's um, Lucy is telling him about the multiverse theory, and Vimes is like, "Oh, so you mean like there's lots of multiverses where this has happened and this has happened?" And Lucy's, "Yes, there's even one where Sam Vimes killed his wife." And Sam is just silent for a second. He's like, "That's never happened." And he just, uh, you know, you can tell by the absolute conviction that he's like, "Yes, he would never kill his wife," like as he is now.
1: Yeah, I I think that's, I mean, however that plays into the accuracy of quantum physics and multiverse theory, I think that idea of like a a limited multiverse theory is probably necessary from a narrative point of view to keep up the stakes, you know, like everything can happen anywhere anytime some universe out there it sort of kind of means well what's the point of anything you know like particularly in a story you're being asked to invest into so i think that's really vital but yeah you're right the stuff with like him and sybil it brings you back to that bit in men at arms you know when he questions what you're really marrying or is it the money like that's so grim but so very real and so raw and and honest um and and I think you you mentioned earlier about the, the hero's journey, and and I think it's a it's a good point to bring up because in in the, uh, Joseph Campbell's hero's journey, you have the the step of the refusal of the call, and then the hero ends up going on. And I think the big thing with Vimes here is that like he doesn't have a choice. You know, he ends up kind of trusting to this, so then he's sort of wrestling with uh, I suppose how how much he's embracing it or not. Like his, mm-hmm. his kind of got him going back to. Relive the past is—it's it, it's almost like, like like a midlife crisis fantasy, you know? Um,
0: yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. And like, it's—it's it's great because um, it is him like trying to relive the glory days, but like, there's part like in the end, he. There's hints at it at the start where he is just trying to have to accept the idea that like he is a father and he's leaving a legacy behind him rather than being an active player like, you know, in current events. I think this is beautifully, beautifully foreshadowed in the first time he and uh, Sam go on patrol and the first thing that he teaches his younger self is how to walk. Yeah. Like you know, yeah you have to no you can't walk like that, you'll get tired too easily. You have to have like an am, am amiable gait in order to keep up your energies. Like he's literally teaching himself how to walk, which is so beautiful and perfect that I just I love that moment, like when it happened, it was great. Um we also have when we're talking about the hero's journey, there's a lot of, you know, all the archetypes that are there in the hero's journey, and one in particular that is really fun is the shadow, which in this case is Carcer, I think. You know, like, this idea of, like, what will become... Is it—is it Shadow? Is that the name of the...
1: Is that the archetype um, name? Oh, it's, it's been a long time since I read The Hero with a Thousand Faces. I i but, think it uh, is. Sure, but sure, like Whether it is or it isn't, let's let's get talking about Carcer. Because he's an interesting one. Um, I think I said before, Terry Pratchett apparently said he's one of his favorite villains. Because yeah. everyone knows the Carcer. And, and a lot of people seem to uh, think of it... Um, he was one of their favourites, even though, like, he, you know, he doesn't have a huge amount of page time, he's certainly very, um, he, he's, I suppose, uh, like, a less colourful villain in a lot of ways than, than many of the others, um, I, I think I love the way he's established with, the quote is, um, he acted like the kind of rascal who made a dodgy living selling watches to go green after a week. And this, mm. this sort of echoes really familiar kind of friendly archetypes from fantasy and and crime texts like you know the, the harmless grifter like you know um like dibbler really like imagine yeah like you know one of dibbler schemes just involved killing people um or like, like imagine like mundungus fletcher and harry potter just murdered ron or you know like <laughs> like, like, like brooklyn 99 opened with like uh what's what's the name of Craig Robinson's character again he's like recurring oh the so the Pontiac Bandit yeah yeah in yeah. one of the episodes where they would stop and it was like he's just killed Hitchcock you know mm. <laughs> and they're like oh shit yeah he's a criminal um, yeah, I think that, that
0: that in itself makes him particularly interesting because we've had lots of favourite villains before like one that always comes to mind is Mr. Teatime or Tea time whatever you want to call it because he's like got it wrong oh, He's got so many quirks. He's like, he's, he's visually interesting. Like his personality is bizarre and like the story works in his favor. Like he's great, but he's also a very melodramatic villain. Like he feels very constructed. Whereas Carcer does feel like a very lived in, honest to God bastard. Who's just someone like, like Terry Pratchett says, it is someone that you could very easily just know. Like anyone could be a Carcer. Well, not everybody knows someone who's like a Carcer. And I'm like, yeah. he feels so Blatantly honest and real and I think that's something that a lot of the previous villains were missing um, he might he might be my favourite villain like I mean but maybe a lot of that is the tie that he has to Vibes
1: you know he he's like um, I mean he thrives on Chaos he's kind of like a like Heath Ledger's Joker without the gimmicks sort or of the make or anything like that like that sort of mm. figure um, or he, he, he kind of reminds me of like um Ted Bundy, the, the serial killer, as well, because, like, as suppose, you know, like, most serial killers are sort of, uh, I'm speaking really generally here, but, you know, like, asocial and, like, inept in other areas of their life, and Bundy was this charming chameleon who could, you know, uh, I suppose, like, win over a lot of people and fit into a lot of backgrounds and is sort of like that and how adaptable he is like he you know I mean again he has that rascally charm about him that makes you disbelieve the idea that he could be a killer but he goes back into the past and he just instantly adapts to it you know and ends up getting a job and yes. the, the watch And but by the end of it he's, he's captain of Snapcase's guard when Vimes eventually gets hold of him um. Yeah, it's
0: it's a really interesting like uh, dynamic between Vimes and him, and like and that's actually an interesting comparison to make between like the Joker and Batman because I was thinking before, uh, like I was trying to think of like just general flaws with the books and think like what what has it got and one thing I did come up with is like I'm not really sure what character's motivation is. Like, behind being a bastard, like, you know, I mean, there's a lot of talk of how he's just like, he does what he wants, you know, like, uh, he just kind of gets to that point where he's dangerously sane and he realizes, you know, the law doesn't have to apply to me. And, like, that's fair enough, but, like, what pushed him that far? What, what, what happened to him to make him be this way? And, like, that's not really explained, but, maybe it doesn't
1: have to be what what do you yeah. think on that yeah i i i don't think it does in this case and it's funny like i i remember this being a big issue for me with um dr crucis in uh men at arms that I, I thought like his you know his motivation is the client i don't think character needs one because he's one he he's very much drawn firmly in that uh, mold of like the you know the serial killer the psychopath the, the trail killer uh who we've encountered probably like in, you know, whether it's like real life true crime reading or just like other fiction. So he feels familiar enough that you don't, as a reader, you, you're never expecting him, you know, a moment where his motivations are explained. Uh, mm. But also I think Vimes is big, like like we talked before too, but Pratchett's villains generally have to be, like the conflict has to be diffused both like physically and, um, you know, and, and forcibly, but also conceptually. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes uh, breaking the, these, these two things up can be a little messy. And I think here you have volumes central central uh, struggle being about like how much he can do in in, you know, to change history, how much he should do. He's like constantly restraining himself and arguing with himself over his role as this like um uh, Borrowing a TV tropeism here, but a Peggy Sue. Did you notice? Have uh, you come across this term? Uh,
0: I have, but I can't. You're gonna to have to explain the meaning to me because it's been a while since I've heard it. Well, I think it may have
1: come from the, the Buddy Holly song, Peggy Sue. I love you. Um, <laughs> but it's it's like it's an offshoot of a kind of like a Mary Sue style. And, uh, although the character doesn't necessarily have to be like a, a you know faultless, perfect Mary Sue. But it's like this character who is um able to go like is usually written in fan fiction who is like sent back to an earlier point in the series whether it's you know books films tv whatever and then has the advantages of knows what's coming and is kind of able to rewrite the continuity of the series and vines <clears> is in that position here and he's constantly wrestling with himself about how much he should actually do you know it's obviously a big advantage to him but at the same time does he want to kind of destroy his own uh, future as it were um and then on the other hand, you have Carcer, who just has, like, no compunctions about that whatsoever. You know, he's, he's back there, and he's just going to do whatever he likes to his advantage to kind of get his kicks. Um, and that just reflects kind of a contrast so brilliantly with, with Vimes' big conceptual struggle that I, I think he makes the, the perfect villain for this. And then he's far from the only villain either. He's like... He's the one Vimes has to get rid of, but the others are there in the course of history. You know, you have yeah. Snapcase and Winder and Swing, who I think is, is absolutely brilliant. <laughs> oh, no, Swing is fantastic. He's actually, yeah, he's, again, what
0: I do like about this is that, like, this is, like, a great book, but what feels so good about it is it feels so small, and therefore the stakes are higher. This is something that I kind of found myself contrasting a little bit with, um earlier marvel movies (laughs) if that makes sense like we i think i think this is something that we've discussed before but you know the way like you know the mcu the way it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and like the bigger it gets like the stakes are so astronomically huge that it's kind of hard to get invested whereas like i remember really enjoying like very like the very first spider-man trilogy like you know when that came out stakes there were considerably lower it was literally like one city or in some cases literally just spider-man's life you know and um because the stakes were smaller, they felt more real and tangible, you know, and this seems to be happening here. Everything here feels a lot more tangible and like, which is ironic considering how intangible everything feels to Vimes, like, you know, while he's in the past. But um, yeah, what the things that I find really interesting are like, um, it's really interesting that Vimes has so many flaws in this book that we've discussed already, but there's two moments that, uh, when contrasted, kind of spell his character out in such a satisfying way. So, the entire way through the book, and every time he kind of finds himself face to face with Carcer, and like he keeps thinking to himself. Will I be like this vigilante character? Will I snap and just like, you know, kill Carcer? I mean, the world will be a better place if I get rid of him. He's done so many bad things. Nobody's going to miss Carcer. But then there's that little voice in his head thinking, yeah, but then what will I become? I'll basically become Carcer and that will be so much worse. So he's wrestling with that and he's trying to restrain himself. So he's struggling with self-control in this moment. But then there's a separate moment when he is in the past and he knows what should happen And he thinks I should exercise my self-control and allow that to happen so that I can grow up to become the Vimes that I know I should be. But he knows he can't do that because he is Sam Vimes. And every part of Sam Vimes screams out that I have to do my best to save people here. So there's two moments where he's wrestling with self-control, one in which he wants to kill Carcer and another in which he wants to help people. And in the term. In the one where he wants to kill Carcer, he manages to restrain himself. But the one where he wants to help people, he can't. So when it comes to self-control, he is able to exercise it when it comes to helping people and being a good person. But when it comes to being like a monster, like Yeah, or sorry, when it comes to helping people and just generally being a good person, he can't exercise self-control. That's who he is. That's his id. Whereas when it comes to killing Carcer, he is able to exercise self-control, which shows that fundamentally, even though he is like he has many flaws, he is fundamentally a good person. Like it's, it's it takes a while. It's like it's very roundabout to come to that conclusion, but it's there, and I found that so satisfying when I read it. It was so good.
1: Yeah, it's um, i was trying to call for it, but it's the, yeah, if the price is selling like those good men to the night there was no universe anywhere where Sam Vimes would do that because if he uh, if he did he wouldn't be Sam Vimes is yeah, a moment that gives me chills um, but I think there's a third moment too where uh, he, he wrestles with it is when he's at the barricade and uh, Rust has told him to take it down and he says hey, you can't take the law into your own hands and then he stops himself and he's like, well, like what's the point of the law if like who who's it helping here? You know, like, and and I think that's fascinating because we brought the the uh, Batman Joker um, uh, g- comparison earlier, and the whole idea of like you know la Vimes uh, having to kind of restrain himself and, and not kill the Joker is undercut by the medium of you know that like that series, like Batman in whatever form, be it like comics or films or, you know, cartoons is is ongoing. So the Joker is always going to return to, you know, commit more and more crime. So Mm -hmm. even someone who's like staunchly, like I, I would consider myself like, you know, ran like staunchly against the death penalty but even at that point i'm like yeah just kill him you know like it's it's, like it's clearly whatever systems lie in Gotham city in the form of you know uh incarceration or rehabilitation or whatever else clearly don't work at this point Um, obviously this despite medium doesn't have that uh doesn't have that um i suppose like inherent limitation to, to wrestle with because carcer only shows up in this book uh but just that that idea of like having to i suppose like you're restraining yourself by adhering to the structures and virtues of like a you know a legal system and an idea of what policing is and you know and what like justice is but you're also being confronted with the limitations and corruptions of that system you know in people like rust and swing and um, you know, carcers, a the ranks and so on. So, Vimes is like, he's not just kind of, it's not presenting a really simplistic view or like, oh, the good copper just does things by the book all of the time and, you know, follows his orders. He's better than some wild vigilante. Nor is it going like, we just need some crazy guy, some mechanical figure <laughs> who is going to do things by the book. Uh, it, it's, it's showing how difficult it is to, to navigate between those two things. Um, mm. And I, yeah, I just think the book manages that beautifully. Like the the tension throughout it um, is fantastic. And just, the, like, yeah, like, yeah Vimes' himself struggle uh, with himself and his desire to get back home and the, the the kind of just just inherent melancholy that is suffused throughout the entire book of you knowing because Vimes knows that like so many of these people are going to die, mm. um, yeah, it's a really brutal. Like I I, I found them um, like uh, I depart with the, the cigarette case, brought tears to my eyes when, I was mm. it when the monks returned the cigarette case and he has this link to, uh, to civil and and his present. But I like I found someone like say like. Uh, sergeant dickens a really affecting character the fact uh, first of all like the fact that he he shows up quite late so not only do you have the kind of metatextual uh sense of like oh he's going to die but you also have the sense of like oh i wish i are seeing more of this guy like he's, he's yeah fun. yeah um combined with the fact that he comes from another watch house so he isn't even someone who's been under like keel's uh watch I suppose. So like he just lends to the sense of like other decent people out there, you know. And yeah. they're just given uh the, the freedom and the support within a structure that briefly exists of the glorious Republic of Trigal Minor. people's Republic of Minor, <laughs> They could they could be decent, you know, they don't have to be uh like following their orders to, to kill in, innocent people. Um and yeah and then his his kind of like rage and disbelief over like that they're being they're, uh, they're going to kill them, despite the fact that there was an amnesty, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah, it's just like... Oh, I don't know. It's, it's just so affecting. Um, like, the fact that we see those graves early on. Yeah. And they're just waiting to be filled. The whole book, they're just waiting to be filled. You know... Like, you know Sam survives, and you know Colon and Nobby and Dibbler survive. Um, you know, and that's about it. Like, all of those other guys, like, you know, uh, are are gone to go. There's, there's yeah, like like Ned Coates, he's a really interesting character as well. We see a revolutionary who doesn't trust Vimes and sees to seems got a match for him in a lot of ways. I, I do love the moment where Vimes admits to him he's from out of time. Firstly because it kind of again acts as this like really bolsters Coates's character that Vimes can, you know, even though he knows he's going at that point, but that he can sort of trust him and respects him enough that I'm not gonna lie to <laughs> you anymore. Secondly because Coates' reaction of how far back <laughs> <He's> possibly, <laughs> That's a great moment. <laughs> it's, it's great, um, but it yeah, is a- yeah. It's, the, the, the one one thing I would say With all the other Watchmen who are like wonderfully characterised, and we do get this mix between like the like people like Quirk and Knock, who are you know really sort of. Uh, repugnant, but in a, in a very mundane, uh, grimy sort of, like, evil, rather than, he, rather than even, like, even Carcer, who he said is quite relatable. He's still sort of spectacular in the violence he commits. Damn, um, they're, they're sort of jobs worse. The, the one thing I think is a little bit of a pity is that, like, Leggy Gaskin is mentioned a couple of times, and he's the watchman whose death kicks off guard's guards. So I thought it was sort of a pity that we don't see more of him, uh, given yeah. that, like, if... Because part of the, this volume's is sense of like nostalgia, but then being discombobulated by Trumbach and is shared by the reader if you've read through all of the Watch books to this point. You know, like mm-hmm. you're like, oh yeah, it's, it's kind of like going back to Guards, guard, sort of, and then seeing, oh, this is actually really disconcerting. Uh, so it's... it would be interesting for the reader to see him, you know, and and, and, and then again, it would be an added sense of melancholy of like a fellow who we know is going to die, going to die a pretty miserable death. I, I think is he killed? He's killed on on duty, and like he's at this rainy funeral, which just Vimes and nobby and colon there. And but that's that's a minor thing. That's a very minor thing. In fact, like it's something I was only aware of because the characterization across the board with the minor characters elsewhere is so good that I sort yeah. of wish he got some of that shine.
0: I do think that the the way people are portrayed in this is like exceptionally well done because. I think in, the, in this book in particular, where in previous books, like there's a lot of people are portrayed really well and, uh, you know, with great characteristics. But many of them are archetypes, unusual archetypes, but archetypes nonetheless. Whereas here, they just all feel like people. They feel like such lived in people. Like some of them are remarkable because they're so unremarkable. You know, like uh, even like the character of Snouty, like his main characteristic is having a big nose and like his like little flip between like how he's, you know, Vime's aggressor, like he's his jailer at first. But then he becomes almost this subservient, sort of knobby like figure, but with like a bit of a difference in that he's kind of like a uh, very people pleasing, like and it's it's just really great. So um, I think it's really important here, like a message that I think Terry Pratchett is trying to get across is the importance of knowing that the names in history books aren't just names, because you know, at the start of the book um, we're talking about like the anniversary of this event, and you know, at first it feels like, kind of like nothing it's like, oh this is an event that, I mean let's say if this was just like everyday life and you didn't know what was going to happen you're like oh these were people who died 25 years ago it's like oh fair enough and it's like you know anything like if, say, if we say like oh hey here's some people who died like you know 50, 60 years ago and we're like oh really that's interesting here do you want to do you want to get some metal vending machines like a aid or something grand yeah 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 like it's very easy to dismiss that when they're just yeah, names like
1: when you go through a graveyard and you see all these you know gravestones of people you, you never knew and you think you know, they all had like lives and people who loved them and like they all done things. And you know, Mm. now it's, it's just like a name to people like me who are uh, passing through. Um, Mm. But
0: um, I think, yeah, I think it was a great job. I think you were saying the moment that really got to you was the cigar case, the bit that got me and like, Oh god, nearly in tears at the end was um when veterinary at the very end of the book says, We could erect a statue to them. They did what they had to do, and Vines turns on him angrily and says, No, they did what they didn't have to do and I'm like, Oh yeah. my god, that got me right here. Like that is so powerful because like that speaks to like a struggle that goes on every single day when you think of like war, police work, everything. Because like Nobody has to do that unless, like, their lives are on the line. And that's the thing. When it gets to that point in the book where, like, all the guards say, we're with you, Keel. We'll, we'll, like, follow you, no problem. And he's like, they're literally, like, they don't have to do this. They had the option to run. And, like, Vines knows that. He's He's listening to them saying, yeah, we'll do it. We're all part of the same revolution. And he's like, you didn't have to do this. You didn't have to, like, do any of this, but here you are and it's like they're unremarkable but they were still people so it's it really hits hard. it's a very strong powerful moment that we don't see very often in a lot of these books like there are there are emotional moments where this is like this feels much more relatable i think mainly because like they're it's devoid of many of the fantasy elements but also because it's so well crafted
1: yeah i i think too with the volumes the rejection of the monument of them like they didn't really die for any political cause you know like the, their brief, glorious People's Republic was kind of abolished by the uh, powers that be in ankh um, and they were just like mown down just for uh, by guilt of association with, with Kiel. So the idea of like having them there with the flag you can imagine, like maybe not veterinary but like other figures in the Ankh-Morpork hierarchy using it as a sort of propaganda thing, you know, like a lot of monuments or, you know, military uh, sacrifices are, are where like whatever, regardless of what they were for in, you know, or what the actual person was thinking, who knows? And in, in the time it happened, they're co-opted by people in the, the modern day to justify their own causes. Um, so like volumes having kind of been chewed up and spat out by the Ankh-Morpork political system in the most violent way uh, in his sojourn in the past, you can see why yeah. that has such distaste for him, like the idea of just kind of uh, folding their sacrifice into, into that.
0: Yeah, and actually there's a great moment where I feel like it's just Terry Pratchett like putting himself into the book where uh, Vimes is talking to young Vimes and he has this beautiful quote that he has here. uh, I've written it down here. It's, uh, don't put your trust in revolutions. They always come around again. That's why they're called revolutions. People die and nothing changes. And that kind of reflects the cynicism that like both Vimes and I think Terry Pratchett in a way has for like a this kind of like political movement so like yeah it's it's good that uh vimes refuses the the monument in that sense like you said because it probably would be utilized that way and just wouldn't be justified
1: yeah although i do think there's an interesting dissonance between vimes's thoughts on um you know uh like later he he kind of deconstructs this idea of fighting for the people and how like um you know the, the the people who fight for the people have this very distorted view of of what the people are and they become more of a symbol and you know when they sort of uh, this, the, the, like reality is inconveniently incompatible with this symbol it's the symbol that wins out but despite that, I mean he more or less ends up doing that anyway when he tells them to reassemble the barricade and when he's protecting all of these strangers and he's welcoming people from around into the protection of their barricade like, he's ultimately doing that You know, he's defending the lives of these people he doesn't know for an abstract principle that involves like a sense of uh, I don't know, like like respect for human life and duty to protect others. You know, mm. um, like he mightn't be as uh, bombastic or naive about it as someone like Red Shoe, but I think they're like the, the book sort of implies like Vimes is closer to that than he thinks he is.
0: Yeah, and there's that wonderful moment where um, after he takes a bit of a rest and he wakes up to find that. Uh, uh colon has pushed the barricades further and further until it 's covering mm-hmm. like more than a quarter of the city, and uh they say how like you know we were protecting like the minorities, but like at what point do we stop becoming minorities and just become the majority and like then what are we when we 're fighting the other half yeah. like you know so it's it puts them in a very interesting position and it's not mentioned in the book like they don't talk about old stone face vies like you know his ancestor who killed the king. Uh, there's no parallel or contrast made with him, but like I feel like there could have been something there on that.
1: Oh, it's interesting because um, Vimes' rejection of building a monument to the uh, watchman who died it completely contrasts with the fact that Vetinari uh, is able to win him over with the statue of Old Stoneface um, in Fete of Clay, at the end of Fete of Clay. Is it of Clay or Jingo? Uh, One or the other, anyway. I think it's Fete of Clay, um, yeah. Yeah, like, uh, it's, I don't know, actually we had, um, I don't know if you saw it, we had a, a Facebook message from a listener who said that in one of the later, I think it's one of the Tiffany books, he he like uses the word Cromwells in a derogatory way, like you're used to referring yes. to, to someone and he said, oh, maybe his you know, feelings on this changed after uh, my, my ranting about it in uh, our Feed Clay episode, but I, I, I don't know. I don't know whether he, like, actively had revised his opinion at this point or whether just the way this book took him, you know, he got to the point where it, it feels like the logical and appropriate ending for Vimes to reject that. You know, I, I, like, who know, I I don't want to speculate too much about, like, oh, yes, this moment at the end of Nightwatch is an explicit rejection of, you know, what, what he uh, earlier espoused. Like, you know, we're not going to know that. But it is interesting nonetheless, and you're right, that, that it isn't brought up to... Um, when I, I suppose it's been one of our big links to the political past of Ankh Morvork and Vimes' feelings on it in earlier books, and um, mm. it's interesting that it doesn't come up.
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess you could say that, like, um. I mean, because we don't get to live that part of, like, old Stoneface's life, we don't get to see what happened. We just have these splintered recollections and memories that people have of him. And generally, the vibe that we get from him is that he murdered a king. Like, the king might have been mad, but essentially his role was murdering a king. And when it's that black and white... Like, from our point of view as readers, we can say, like, well, it sounds like he did a good thing. You know, he murdered a mad king and he brought about, like, a more civilized Ankh-Morpork because of that. And when it's that black and white, like, back then it would make sense, I suppose, from Terry Pratchett's point of view. It says, yeah, it's about time you got the justice he deserves, you know, like, to have, like, a statue erected to him. But here, obviously, it's a lot more, politically, it's a lot more complicated. Like, a lot more complicated. So, um, yeah, so, like... Obviously, it, it might, I think it might just be a bit of retconning on his, like, general perspectives on it. Uh, hard to say now, but, um, yeah. but
1: um, well, I don't know if I fall under, the, like, full-on retcon, because he doesn't write it out of history. Hmm. Like, history he just doesn't address it here. Yeah, uh, what did you think of the use of Lutzi and the History Monks here, given that we had uh, mixed feelings on them in Teeth of Time?
0: I think they were much better utilized here than it was in Thief of, Thief of Time. I think like our previous complaint kind of stands true here that like they can't necessarily carry a book by themselves, but they're very good side characters. Um, I think Lucy works a lot better as kind of a quirky, sarcastic kind of, you know, side character as opposed to like the main person like or one of the main people that he was before who has all these like, not necessarily angsty moments, but like. You know, trying to build on his mythos when he doesn't—he doesn't really need one.
1: Um. Yeah, the uh, the note I have here is um, Lucy is good here as a helpful, compassionate, but somewhat annoying Know It All side character. <laughs> <laughs> accurate, yeah,
0: accurate. Um,
1: yeah, but but he's he's annoying in a kind of way he's meant to be, where it's like it's it's that position, a very relatable position. Vimes is in, um, where. You're you're sort of panicked and at a loose end, and of course the person who's you know there to help you, of course knows much more about whatever situation it is than you do. Well, I mean that's that's why they're the person is there to help. But just on on this kind of like just human one to one level, it's sort of annoying to deal with that, you know. Um, yeah,
0: I feel like it. The book wouldn't have. Um, it, it might have benefited more with a little less Lucy. Like, I don't think that he contributed a huge... I mean, obviously, like, for central pivotal points of the plot, he's very, very important. But for, like, the conceptual uh, parts of it and, like, you know, for the um, the metaphorical messages that, like, Terry Patch is trying to convey, I feel like he wasn't that important. So I wouldn't have minded less of him in the book. You know? Yeah,
1: um... He does He does get us the cigarette case, which, as, as I mentioned, was a moment that I, I loved. I do think that initial bit when Vimes ends up, um, you know, when he's in Tilden's office and then he ends up back uh, with, with Lucy and explains it, I think that definitely slows the pace of the book down a bit. I mean, it's not it's yeah. necessary. You, you can really sense Pratchett's concern of, like, how do I do this? But in the sense of, like, explaining it from a plot point of view, establishing the stakes. Like... But, you know, with the reader sort of know, Knowing that, like, okay, the whole history Of Ankh-Morpork Isn't going to be changed here, you know um, mm. Like, I, I suppose he's very anxious That this isn't just seen as Vimes's Kind of, like, field trip or holiday Back to the past That there's, like, it's as yeah. impactful And dangerous as, as any story Set in the present of the books And I suppose that's why we get so much stuff from Lutzi on, on the multiverse, uh, but, like you know the possibilities aren't completely endless and we've got to like get cursor it does slow the pace but I, I think it is necessary and and um i, I do like to just the way um if it's the monks into the fabric of ankh morpork like Lucy talking about your man owning the shonky shop yeah and, yeah, and yeah. reflecting on it and, and that goes back to that like wonderful uh like sort of description of like um like poverty we get in in feet of clay with that like pride of people always washing their steps and saving up for a funeral, and um, mm. the, the stuff with the Shonky shop is next on the back to that. And, I mean this book gives gives more detailed and uh, nuanced look at like more pork more than any other. So kind of establishing that the monks within that and just how other people see them. You know when they're not saving the world, uh, like like a Rosie saying uh, who cares what they do they're just monks or Lucy <laughs> just being seen as just like bald old man who sweeps up the, the watch house by Snouty and, and Tilden um, yeah. is, is very good also uh, we, we, when we done Tea for Time we had a listener ask I think it was um, uh, I, 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 Stephen uh, but I can't remember what his, his current Twitter handle is but he he asked about the theory about it being changed or if the events of Nightwatch occurring during the events of Teeth of Time, and this definitely seems to point to it. Here, Lucy talks about Vimes being caught in a major temporal no- anomaly that he doesn't have time to explain. And when the um. lightning bolt hits the um, uh, that hits that sends Vimes and Carcer back to the past, it describes uh, a lot of stuff happening. And one of the things is a clock stopping. Um, oh somewhere. yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I it, uh, where is it? They said afterwards that a bolt of lightning hit a clockmaker's shop on the street of Cunning Artificers stopping all clocks at that instant. So, yeah, it seems to happen concurrently with with Thief of Time, alright. So, that's a nice little bit of continuity there. That again, when I first listened to this, I hadn't, I'd to get Red Thief of Time, and, you know, I wasn't, didn't, uh, wasn't left at sea because of that either, you know, although it's a bonus when you have Red Thief of Time.
0: Yeah, it's a a really nice idea to think that it is happening concurrently with uh, Thief of Time. Um, It's. Yeah, it's, I, I don't know, like, I can't really get away from the fact that, like you said, that it the, it does slow the pace down a bit when um, he does first take Vimes down. And I feel like, yeah, it it is important to explain those stakes because uh, we, we need that in order to understand Vimes' state of mind while he's in the past because if we don't, like you said, it just feels like Vimes' holiday, like, you know, Ernest goes to the beach, that kind of thing. But I do feel like, could have been explained better like it's you could keep you could keep the pace going and have things happening like like that progress the plot from the past and also the plot of vimes and why he's in the past like simultaneously it's it's not a huge like it's it's one of the very very few low points of the book but it's still like it's because there's so few low points it does stick out and for that reason like it's now that you said it it's it's irking me a little bit but i'll tell you one of the bits that didn't irk me and i want to hear your thoughts on is the bit where they storm the unmentionables interrogation rooms because that is probably the darkest moment we have come across in the entire series and i personally loved because it was so grim uh what were your thoughts on it in general
1: Surprise, surprise, the, the fellow who started the horror society and IADT loves the, the darkest
0: bit and it. it's so dark, it's so grim, like everything about it just screams like yeah, it's got funny you should say the horror thing, yeah, it's got like hostile or saw vibes or um yeah, the the bit that I thought of uh was do you know you saw Pan's Labyrinth, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like just the the very, there's like that one wonderful slash absolutely awful torture scene that you only catch a very small glimpse of at the very start. Just when they're starting to torture one prisoner and it's it's so dark and it's actually, it's it's one of those, gr- the greatest moments of, uh, you know, let, letting the reader's imagination do the work. Like you said, when Vimes is walking around and like he steps on something and he sees it's a tooth and you're like, your imagination just runs wild there. Yeah, it's very
1: very deftly done. There's like just little pointers towards, you know, what the darkest place here imaginings can go. Mm. Um, Boards had been nailed over the tiny window at street level. This wasn't the place where light was welcomed. And all the walls and even the ceiling were padded heavily with sacks stuffed with straw. Sacks had even been nailed to the door. This was a very thorough cell. Not even sound was meant to escape. A couple of torches did nothing at all for the darkness, except make it dirty. Behind him, by heard Nancy Ball throw up. Um, yeah, and then moments later, he, he sees the tooth. Um, yeah, and then young Sam, um, I I like the the bit the, uh, where, they see like um, the, the clerk in there? And he's like, I'm just a clerk. I just write things down. You know, he's like, uh, I'd, I'd reminds you of the whole like um was Adolf Eichmann, banality of evil stuff, like the guy who came up with all the logistics of getting the people to the concentration camps. You know, obviously this isn't on quite, quite that scale, but it's that same sort of uh, point of, you know, these places where the most brutal, violent, horrible things we can imagine are being carried out. They're facilitated by these people who are able to, in their minds, wash their hands of it because they're just, you know, writing things down and adding things up and, they, you know, they didn't hurt anybody and this is the thing like that's actually a theme
0: that runs through this entire book as well because almost everybody seems to be guilty of that in like this old version like even um like even the guards themselves like the guys that uh vimes takes like control of as sergeant keel like they're the ones driving the hurry up wagon to this place and they're handing people over completely guilt-free not even thinking about what happens and this really this comes to a head so much when like young sam is like but Mm -hmm. oh my god we we used to do this like every day like and we didn't even think about what happened in there it's like oh my god it's so grim when you think of it that way (laughs) but even the likes of um like even, like, the patrician himself is, like, this really... Like, uh, Winder is this, like, uber-paranoid guy who's just trying to stay in power. And, like, he's enabling all this to happen. And, like, like you said, like, he's up having his party, like, trying to keep his city running. And you can't see that I'm doing the inverted uh, commas quotes thing doing here now. But, uh, you know, all these... And, like, um he's just trying to keep the place going. But... You know it's 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 just like signing a piece of paper to like allow the unmentionables to work and do do whatever it's just yeah it's it's it feels very divorced from reality so
1: well it, it, yeah it, it again reminds you of the death of stalin where um i think what that film does wonderfully is it just depicts the the massive amounts of paranoia and fear that drive these power circles and brutality you know there's a real sense in that film in, in the weight of Stalin's death when you have all of the other Soviet leaders sort of wrestling for power that they're not really doing it because they have because they'll enjoy the power well like maybe Beria um, is the exception there but and, and they don't seem in, in the film at least you know whatever about the actual historical characters to express like oh you know well I should be the one to run the Soviet Union because I have this you know idea about how I want to Whatever communism to work and this guy doesn't like they're just doing it because if they're not in power they're afraid of what will happen to them if they are you know or or by by the people who are or it's like that bit at the end of nineteen eighty four when O'Brien spoilers it's oh don't tell me of. don't
0: tell me I haven't actually read the book
1: <laughs> okay well I've already spoiled something huge for you there <laughs> but, <laughs> but but he, he is listen, I'm just going to go on he, he no, says um, well yeah but, but basically he says how like like, this system, you know, they live in in the book, it doesn't really help anyone like, even the the top party members, like, the the levels of um, comfort and lavishness they live in are actually relatively sparse compared to, say, like, you know uh, people high up in the aristocracy or, like, in, you know, kind of um, whatever system of power existed in, in the past. And we sort of have to hear, but again, Winder is so paranoid. He, he is trying to lavish parties, and there's a sense of, like, the, the nobles are enjoying themselves to an extent. But even then, we don't, you know, it doesn't seem like he's really wielding the power for any other end than to keep himself in power. Like, it's not like he enjoys torturing people. You know, he's not a sadist. We never see that. He just he's so paranoid. And even guys like Quirk and knock are so grubby and um you know they're just like they're just doing this all because it's their job and getting these like dull little you know pleasures out of it like taking bribes or whatever else it's not like this system is kind of benefiting them in a way that means that like they're the haves and everyone else is the have-nots you know Mm. it's this like just horrible paranoia where almost everyone you know i mean there are haves and have-nots. There's still an nobility. But it's, it's less about luxuriousness and more just about like complete uh, raw paranoia. There's a bit, I think, about the... Uh, it's either the executioner that bimes bites and locks to the chair or one of the other lads he sees in Cable Street where he thinks about um, someone who... He, he thinks of him as someone who uh, didn't learn the lesson that like you know there was no point in punching after people had lost consciousness and that he didn't even enjoy it. It was just a job... Uh, To Mm -hmm. him, You know, like all kind of all this violence just being reduced down, um, to this mundane, grimy gears, grinding forward, uh, oiled by paranoia sort of level. And in that, again, Carcer is such a remarkable figure because he seems to enjoy it so much and really revel in it compared to anyone else there. Um, Like, like weirdly, like, again, it it makes Swing such an odd and powerful character because he has this ideology, even as as twisted as it is. It kind of alludes to the fact that, like, that and the fact that he came from, like, a respectable background, he was in the Assassin's Guild, that allowed him to achieve this position because everyone else is just there, you know, locking people up, torturing them, keeping this cycle going without any thought to what it does, and Swing's weird... um, like, Lombrosian form of uh, physiognomy and, and phrenology like is is a sort of ideology, as batshit crazy as it is, you know? And, and that kind of makes him a very dangerous uh, but powerful figure because everyone else is just there to do their job and, and not question it. Yeah.
0: It's actually... There's also this interesting thread going through the book in just that the idea of people in power who... Like, I mean... Yeah, paranoia is a huge part of it, particularly when it comes to, like, uh, uh, Lord Winder. But just the idea of, like people impact there's no such thing as a perfect leader the people who are like trying to do their best like uh there's always going to be flaws with that system like uh because you have as well as winder you also have of course Snapcase, and you have like veterinary and obviously like of all those three veterinary is the best case scenario but that's not to say that it's a perfect system because lots of people have complaints about the way veterinary runs things and it's the same for like uh the way vimes and tilden runs things obviously uh You know, Vimes seems to be the better choice here because, like, he has such a well oiled system as established at the start of the book. But Tilden also, like, he says that he has fond memories of Tilden, like, when he was working with him before. But all these people have issues in the way that they run things. And the idea behind it seems to be that people are, like, doing their best, but that means sometimes cutting corners because they're just human. And there's This interesting bit, like the whole idea of um, the curfew and general state of Ankh-Morpork that has been caused by Lord Winder's system. He talks about how the tax system, he has basically given it to the highest bidder like as a privatized tax collecting system, which has caused absolute chaos in Ankh-Morpork. And I found myself thinking a lot of, um, you know, the like of like, our own private like public systems that should be public that had been outsourced to private corporations mm-hmm. like you know like privatized housing and privatized healthcare systems and you know it's just given this sense that like the, the not the necessary the law but, like, the people in power just don't know what they're doing. And you get this sense that the common man is just questioning everything. And it's like, if they don't know what they're doing, what's the, what's to say I can't just do what I want because maybe I know better? And that feeds into the chaos that gets into, like, Vine's psyche and, like, Carcer's psyche as well. That Where he just thinks, like, you know, everybody's incompetent, but I know what I'm doing. So, like, I'll just do what I want. And that definitely feeds into Carcer's character when he's dealing with, like, you know the uh, Snapcases squad, where everybody seems a bit clueless, but he's just kind of like, listen, I know what I'm doing, so come on, let's go. So, you know, that's it, I, I just I just thought that was an interesting thread that goes through it myself.
1: Yeah, yeah, the, the privatized tax collection. I've almost forgotten about that. But that kind of, again, that, that little level of detail sort of set, it really creates the sense of, the city and the, the context volumes has dropped in being much bigger than just what we see on the page. You know, you sort of know how Ankh-Morpork works in as much as it does work under a winder, mm. um, which is great. I, I think, too, those, those scenes with uh, it's like, major standfast and Captain, you know, the two lads who were kind of given the job of... yeah. Uh, crushing the resistance while their superiors are at a party that is so wonderful for again getting that feeling of like the banality of evil across of you know these guys they seem like actually quite reasonable nice people but just because they have a job to do that they're not going to question they're going to be complicit in the deaths of a lot of innocent people
0: yeah they could easily be in the night watch like so easily just the way they act so yeah actually that's a question for you do you know who's the guy he's on horseback and he comes up to the barricade and like basically vimes recognizes him as like a very smart person and like uh the guy on horseback he turns everybody else says nope nothing to see here come on let's go on and he makes it seem like he's this really relevant character but i remember when i was reading it i was like i don't think he's ever mentioned
1: again do you have any idea who he is um no I don't think so I remember when at that bit wondering oh is he the your man who's commanding the troops later but I don't think he is I think again it's just sort of pointing again making the contributing to that sense of the book being much much bigger than what you get in the pages of like he's this other guy who like vimes like dickens like you know all of the others behind the walls there is, is in a position in the the watch or the army and doesn't agree what's going on um And is going to, in his case, sort of, I suppose, uh, through, you know, uh, enforced ignorance, like help, you know, help uh, volumes along because he, um, because he doesn't agree in that way, you know? So it's, it's, it's creating this sense that the world isn't just divided up into like the goodies who are the people behind the barricade and all of the others who they're fighting. There's all these people who are kind of in these, you know, positions halfway in between that they're trying to navigate and... Mm. Sometimes, in the, as in the case of your man, they can do that in a way that keeps their, you know, their hands and their conscience clean. Then otherwise, in the, in the case of the, the major and the captain commanding the people, they uh, end up being complicit in, you know, uh, horrible acts. I think the the, the amount of stuff that happens, just like off the page, creates a sense. Like of the Dolly Sisters massacre being this huge inciting event in the you know, the would-be revolution, and we just hear about it. And likewise, like, like the people who die in a fight, uh, at the end, you know, their, their deaths, the specter of their deaths hangs over the whole book, but we don't see them die. You know, Nancy mm-hmm. Ball gets uh, hit with the um, grappling hook, and then Vimes, like, knows he's going to die. And there's that horrible bit of, like, I think, it's like, like, like Wiglet or someone sees him. It's like, oh, he's still breathing. And Vimes uh, says, like, it's amazing how people, how desperate people were to see, like, life in in a corpse and say, oh, take him down to Dr. Lon. And he thinks if Lon can sort him out, he can start his own religion. Um, and then later we hear he's dead. And, and Vimes thinks well I knew that but you know it's it's still a shock I think like just all those events like oh, right from the start when Strong of the Arms killed off page all these things happening off page I think it's actually just a huge strength for contributing towards the sense of chaos and helplessness and the sense of this being a really big historical event not just one man's adventure you know mm. it definitely it's a much
0: more lived in world than we've had before where like this is this is a huge jump I think for like Terry Pratchett here like I mean I I, see, I remember around this point when I was reading last time, like a lot of the later books, I feel like they're kind of they're a bit of a step down. Now, maybe now maybe I'm wrong because I was definitely wrong about this one, like when thinking it wasn't like up there. But um, yeah, it's 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 just really impressive world building here, and it's it's the one um, we were talking earlier about Carcer, how uh, as you said that he has to be overcome, uh, like you know physically, but also and conceptual, uh, but also conceptually, and this is probably the first time that I think Terry Pratchett really nails it you know because like in every other case it's always been the villain is this like you know impossible to overcome obstacle you know this this person that you're always thinking oh I don't know how the protagonist is going to get over this one and then at the end of it they just do and that's it whereas here Carcer is this person who like it's You you always get the sense that, yeah, Vimes could easily probably take him if he just got the opportunity. But then you have to wonder, what's he going to do to him then? So, like, it never really seems like the physicality of the thing is an issue. It's all the emphasis is on the conceptual, which makes it much more intriguing than it was before. Like, in in the other ones, like, you know, you're kind of equally invested in, like, the physical part of it where it's like, you know... Where's the story itself going but also in the conceptual like what is the story itself saying and like where's it going with here it just feels like it's about 75 to 25 conceptual to physical and that really works in in the book's favor i think
1: yeah i i don't know if it goes as, as to say it's the first time he completely nails it like i think he's done a good job in um fifth elephant but splitting them with with d and uh ah. Yeah. Um, oh, sorry. But, yeah, of but course. You're, but you're right. I mean, like if this. If, if this isn't the only time or one of the only times, it's certainly one of the very best. Um, the way that the villain and and their role is handled. Um, just because, like, Carcer's whole, I suppose, his whole threat comes from being able to exploit whatever system he's in. You know, by going outside it. Like, whether it's like being this. A uh, cold um, killer that doesn't go according to logic within modern Angkor pork, or whether it's kind of like finding ways to flourish in the repressive Angkor part of the past. It, again, it, it, it is that kind of like it is the the, the power or the threat posed by a, a serial killer, or someone like Ted Bundy, like you know had like had after the first person he killed, like, had the police, you know, or whatever relevant authorities been told, oh, this is the guy that done it, and they went around to his house, like, it's not like he posed a threat to them then, you know, they could all just, I'd imagine, you know, beat him up and uh, disarm him, uh, haul him off to jail quite easily, it was was more that the threat is in, like, him going beyond whatever um, uh, structures are put in place to protect all of us. Um, mm. And exploiting the the holes that are that are there in the systems. Uh, yeah, and, and given that this whole book is just about the like flaws and limitations of um, systems, but of kind of Vimes' like current life and his, his past life, have uh, works so well because of that.
0: Yeah, yeah. So I think like um, I think like a big part of that as well is, and I, we've brought this up before, and I feel like I'm just like I'm like a broken record here now, but it's so good just the fact that. He's not such a big, melodramatic villain. Like, he just represents, like, you know, the everyday crook. And that's, in a way, so perfect for, like, Vimes in this kind of story. Because, you know, Vimes, as a concept, is just a cop... You know, he's the copper. He's trying to maintain law, stop chaos, and that kind of thing. And Carcer is just an agent of chaos. Like, he hasn't got some evil agenda, which, you know... Again, this is bringing it back, again, I feel like, to the Batman-Joker thing. But it just feels so right. And it's one of those cases where less really is more and I just really appreciate it I just think he's if I'm going to put it down now Carcer is my favourite villain that I've come across so far in Terry Pratchett's work. who's definitely my favourite villain
1: Um, he's certainly up there for me uh, I, I don't know if I thought of putting together a, a hierarchy I, I think one of, one of the things that makes this book work so well is that previous discord books were about like a threat coming to upset the status quo, you know, someone like uh, getting rid of it, veterinary or someone like threatening new technology or development, uh, you know, like moving pictures, solo music and so on. And uh, here the threat is the status quo, you know, it's like the way Ang Morborg is and Carcer kind of like, like folding himself within that system is mm. a sign of that. Like, and it, again, it really uh, makes Vimes and, underdog in a really engaging way when he's sort of going up against the system rather than being part of it and trying to maintain it or maybe reform it a, um, a little like that's it's it's a very refreshing as you said but I don't know it creates a sense of stakes and sense of vulnerability um, and chaos that just isn't always there in or at least not always there to that degree in some of the other books hmm
0: um I think we should probably wrap this up soon but there's one um, there's another thing that I want to talk to you about so um, what did you think of Death's cameo when they you know uh, invade the unmentionables warehouse
1: um, what is he he's just hanging around I, I refresh my memory on that one I, I remember I love his interaction with swing. it's so <laughs> brief is you, your nose is yes I'm a tricky one
0: <laughs> it's so brief. So basically while um yeah, while Death is invading, like this is in the third person. So Vimes himself can't actually hear Death, but um Death is talking to him and halfway like about two or three sentences in, Death is like, Oh, you can't hear me. Huh. Strange. And like that's kinda just it. So I was trying to figure I mean it's interesting that it's there, and I have two theories on why it is. Like a first theory I think is that Because there's so much death in that warehouse, I think that it makes sense for death just to show up there. Like it would just be strange for him not to be there. But the other part of me thinking is I think it might be a kind of playful little foreshadowing on Terry Pratchett's part where he's talking to Vimes thinking that he can hear him and he's surprised that he can't. And I think that's foreshadowing of like Vimes taking Kiel's identi- identity and Keel is going to die very soon. So death is like, oh, you should be able to hear me. You're going to die soon. It's like, oh, wait, but you're not actually going to die soon. So,
1: yeah, yeah,
0: I'm not really sure, but it's just it's a nice, playful little moment. And I enjoyed it. It's a bit strange, but, you know, it's just it's typical Terry Pratchett. It's just a fun little moment there.
1: Yeah, um, I, I think I'd, I'd be willing to accept either or both theories, the idea of the place is so suffused with death that he's already around or, or that he's there for uh, for Keel, I think I, either or, or both work um, very well. Just one thing I did want to uh, talk about are several things, because I'm, we're apt to uh, forget them, is, is there's so many great side characters in this book, like like Dr. Lawn. I really, really like, mm. just kind of like, Beleaguered, sleepily sarcastic, but ultimately quite compassionate doctor. (laughs) You know, I don't know why I own a bed. (laughs) When I die, I'm going to have a bell put on my tombstone so I can have (laughs) the pleasure of not getting up when people ring it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> like he's so he's so good Tilden is really good as um you know like a very flawed but likeable character like how over his in over his head he is and that bit when he he you know he's relieved of his duty and uh, his, young Sam is like outraged but old Sam thinks well luckily he's in over his head and he's probably better off out of it you know it's kind of cruel but fair and that really heartbreaking bit when um when they they rob whatever it is we can't seem to remember, but whatever it is, the like the other watchmen rob off Tilden and plant in in Vimes' locker, and then he knows like you're kind of set up to think that he's gonna incriminate one of them by planting in their locker, but he actually puts it back in Tilden's office and so as not to get anyone in trouble, and says to Tilden, "Oh, you know, maybe you just forgot," and he feels so horrible because he's essentially kind of like like almost gaslighting him, and you know, yeah. this old doddery man that like yeah maybe you're going a bit in the head you know and it's it's absolutely heartbreaking like Tilden's vulnerability the bit where he talks about Dolly sisters and he's trying to justify it to himself as he's talking to Vimes but he just can't, he's so upset, he's like you know, oh uh, in fairness, missiles were thrown but, you know, and he just trails off and he can't even like, like he's obviously so proud in his, his military heritage and history and he's just becoming disgusted with like what that's led to and, like, his, his I don't know, his whole world is stuffing apart. He's, yeah, like, he's uh, a really um, touching character. Uh, <laughs> Red Shoe here is he used wonderfully, um, wonderfully well. Like, uh, you know, I, I, I can't remember, like, did, did I ever wonder, oh, like, what is, what was Red Shoe like when he was alive? And, and here <laughs> we get it. And just, of course, of course, this is what he was like.
0: Go and uh, say one and thing like, about just one way thing way? about Reg Shoe that like I really I'm glad that he is introduced when he is like I'm glad that he wasn't there from the very beginning because he's his his cameo towards the end is fantastic it's really really good and yeah like it fits his character so well that he's this like you know rebel character standing up to the uprising but. I think it was perfect like it's a perfect length of time to get to know red like we don't need him to be there for the entire book i am i'm really happy that the way that it was as short as it was but it, that's all i was going to say there
1: yeah i i obviously like he's kind of a ridiculous figure too and it's used to mock some of the like over idealisticness and um uh of, you know it suppose revolutionary or like um, Left leaning uh, political figures, but I think he, he's really touching too when, with like, the, w- just how upset he is about how it's all gone wrong, and not even Vimes can kind of, you know, find the heart to sort of, like Vimes who's early on when Rage is commenting about, like, you know, uh, I regret that I have only one life to lay down for Whalebone man, and Vimes has kind <laughs> of got this sarky commentary run through his head, and then at that point, he, even he can't, like, he, he just feels so bad that Rage has has had his dreams crushed in such a way you know um like it did I, it's just perfectly captured by the powerpoint when, when he gets up and gives the brave heart thing of like uh you know, you can take our lives, but you can't take our freedom, and it undercuts it by saying that a Carcer's man just can't figure out what he means. It's such a stupid battle cry, and Carcer <laughs> just shoots him. But then he keeps going up. He's a like, Boromir and uh, fellowship in a ring, and even when he's dead, all, like the so, uh, Carcer's men are just running from him in fear because of how determined he was. So you have this like uh, kind of juxtapose with one another, the ridiculousness. Um, and sort of naivety of him with the uh, power of the force of his belief. Um, yeah, it's just wonderful. And then Nobby here, we see Nobby when he's a kind of a oh, artful yeah. dodger like Street Urchin, which <laughs> is a wonderful role. I love his interactions with Vimes. But also, you know, we get some really chilling stuff about his upbringing and his dad's being in oh, prison. Oh, yeah. And again, it's something that makes so much sense when you think of the way he's kind of like jokingly depicted throughout the rest of it as this, like you know, a fellow who grew up completely on the wrong side of tracks, and it's this utterly, you know, um, repulsive uh, individual. Like it makes a horrible sort of sense. um, Yeah. When yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, all the side characters here, Rosie, Madam, they're all excellent. Yeah,
0: I I really like um yeah all the ones you've mentioned I, I I'm really fond of and uh, for all for the vast majority of them I think that like uh they've all they've all got just enough uh time on the page for us to relate to them in just the right way yeah you're definitely right about Nobby he's got such a grim past but it's not dwelt upon which I appreciate because whereas obviously you know me I like stuff to be properly grim but that would have felt very odd like it, it wouldn't have been a good shade for nobby to wear if he was like made this tragic character obviously he is but he's also comic relief and like it's it's nice that this gives him a little bit of color but it doesn't like completely uh change him for like future watchbooks that like we we can't look at nobby again as this joke character um madam as well is one that i really like because it's, so uh, there's a quote from um, the New York Times when they were reviewing this. Uh, they said that they really enjoyed the fact that so many of the characters reject their own stereotypes, um, which obviously is true for a lot of people, particularly Vines. With Madame, I think it stands out particularly well because she's like, um, oh, she, she, she's a character, an archetype that we've seen before in plenty of previous Discworld books. This like all-knowing figure who's like, you know, just, above like you know everybody else she's smarter than everybody else simple as but here she's also got this she's also got veterinary as her nephew who is clearly like you know smarter than she is which you can see in the interaction he has with her while she's stroking her cat and he's saying that like you know if someone like was telling somebody else their evil plan they'd be stroking like a long hair long white haired cat not this
1: flatulent little street tabby thing that she has Oh well I, well I saw that as um like veterinary obviously learns a lot from her and then he mm. ends up having waffles who's this like old flatulent uh incontinent old dog yeah so, like I saw, I saw, well, like, I saw that as kind of a bit of irony rather than a show that, like, he knows better because he's saying, like, you know, I mean, it's, it's the, the old joke about us kind of becoming our parents or seeing Shit. things from a different perspective than we did when he was younger. He's there as a, I don't know what, what age he's meant to be here, like, in his tw- early 20s, I presume, and he's thinking, like, oh, gosh, uh, like, I don't know what she sees in this cat, and then down the line when he's in a position of power, he's going to have this old... Decrepit old dog, you know, yeah. uh, and have the, the, the same relationship. And um, yeah, I, I like with her that um, she's this incredibly competent, calculating, quite like cold and rootless in a lot of ways, revolutionary plotter. Mm. But she has enough compassion to be disgusted with uh, Snapcase deciding mm. to off uh, keel and, you know, sends Veterinary to war- warn him. But it also shows the limitations of her as a schemer, you know, uh, like those those kind of characters in um, them. It's like a uh, Though I'm forever bringing it up, but like, like it's Song of Ice and Fire books by George R. R. Martin um obviously yet to be uh, completed but so while they're ongoing you have all these despite the fact that the show's ended you have all these you know reader theories about like oh what's going to happen or who what so-and-so's motivations are and i always really dislike the ones that like ascribe like kind of grand unifying theories that describe almost everything that happens in the book to one like mastermind figure like little Finger or a virus or something because mm-hmm. i just think it's, it's it's interesting if you have this one person who you know knows everything and it's plotted everything and it has all gone according to their plan. And so I like it that like as competent as Madame is here, we do see the limitations to her and that like Vime says when she kind of offers him to, to join their uh, um, uh, rebellion, and obviously he has the benefit of, of hindsight of like knowing how history goes out. but he's like, you know you won't get what you wanted with that and then she gets Snapcase, and she's like, oh, you know, you should promote this guy. And we just, like, it, it seems to be very shocking to Whore and Slant and Dr. Follett and the others of, like, how rootless and self-centered Snapcase actually is, you know? um, it, it, well, One thing was, uh, it's a very small thing that I kind of wish we could have got, is that you see, like, from characters on the ground, like, like, young Sam, like, what the appeal of Snapcase is, that he's kind of more personable than Winder, you know? And they just think oh yeah this guys he's nice when like Vimes describes him as just another winder with fancier waistcoats and more chins I think it would be interesting if we saw like a little insight into what the conspirators like Madam and Mr. Slant and Dr. Follett what they think Snapcase is going to be like but I presume like they're not operating under the same illusions they don't think he's going to be wonderful but I presume like they're going to think he's more easy to manipulate or you know that he'll be kind of uh well, maybe like cold and cruel, but just sort of go along with business as usual rather than pursuing things to the level of uh, you know bizarre paranoia. Winder has has pursued, uh, so it would be interesting just to see because cause they are clearly that part where um, Slant says, "Here comes the new boss, same as the old boss." Like they're clearly shocked and disillusioned in that moment with what how he uh, him showing his true colors. But we we don't get uh, what they think he's he, he would be otherwise.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's very logical to make that assumption when it comes to conspir- conspirators like um, uh, Madam and Slant and all that. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's just a natural assumption we're supposed to come to. Um, yeah, so I think that's that's pretty much all that I have, unless you have anything else.
1: Um. No. One minor point I wanted to bring up, but I don't want to go too far into it because again, it is more a parallel that may or may not be deliberate. But when we were talking earlier about the the, the rejection of the uh, the monument to to the, the people who died, the Watchmen who died, and you have the bit at the start when Colin gets really angry at the thought of someone who wasn't there wearing the the lilac. Oh um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It kind of contrasts like the lilac is uh, like uh, being worn a commemorative flower is like the, the poppy worn. For um, you know, during November, but of course, whereas the poppy has, and I don't want to get too far down into this, but it's sort of become a bone of contention where it's like, particularly like in in British media and public life, it's so ubiquitous in November that it's like, like it's more the people who don't wear it. Like I'm thinking mainly um, the uh, Irish footballer James McLean got into like a cause huge storm by he doesn't wear one because of the troubles and so on. But without getting too far into that, like it has become so de rigueur to wear that that everyone wears it regardless of you know whether they ever express any feelings about, like, uh, commemorating soldiers or, you know, their feelings on whatever wars, whereas this is, like, an inversion of it. It's, like, it's a very private thing. Only the people who are actually there wear it, and they don't expect or even want um, other people uh, to, to wear it. Now, I had no idea whether that was in any way deliberate, but, uh, we're, you know, we're, whatever, a month off, Remembrance Month at the moment, so I just thought it was an interesting... Uh, parallel, particularly in line with Vimes' rejection of commemorating, uh, publicly commemorating the uh, the seven seven people who died. Uh, yeah,
0: yeah, seven
1: people. Yeah, yeah. I think. Yeah,
0: but um, yeah, well, I think it is interesting that it's Colon who has this little rant mm-hmm. as well instead of Vimes, like because I couldn't really see Vimes himself having a similar rant of like yeah like he does have that moment where he rejects the statue and says no i don't think we should do that but uh colon is a very like emotional and simple-minded character so if like if it is deliberate i think it's smart that uh terry pratchett utilized colon himself for this little like uh you know tirade in which like he doesn't want other people wearing it Um uh, because it shows like this is you know, one train of thought, but not necessarily a uniform, like, train train of thought. Because, like, if Vimes was the one who was thinking this, then it would seem like it was Terry Pratchett's voice and that he was making a point about it. Whereas if it's Colon, it's kind of like, okay, this is one opinion. Because, as you said before, uh, Colon also has this, uh, you know, inherent speciesism, which, like, comes across, like, when he's uh, in the past. So... We can afford to hear his opinion, but not necessarily take it as, like,
1: law or, like, take it too seriously. Well, Vimes doesn't um, Vimes doesn't expressly have the, the argument that Colin does, but he would definitely seem to agree with him. I mean, based on the fact that he rejects a public monument and he says, you had to have been there. He was glad to have been there twice, which is a lovely line. So he definitely yeah. seems to feel the same way uh, about... Um, you know the wearing of the lilac, with the slight exception that he, he veterinary asks him, did he ever wonder why why he why he why veterinary wore it, and he says no. But I would kind of put that down to like you see, Vimes' earlier interactions in earlier books of veterinary. You know when he's very yes sir or no sir, um unless he absolutely has to be. So I like veterinary would be the last person he would bring that up with. You know.
0: Yeah. Um, I think you're right. No, I think there's definitely something behind it. All right. I think I, I think you're right, yeah.
1: Yeah, um so we had a couple of uh Twitter uh comments and, and, and questions on this before we um get into things. So uh uh in brevoluquentia est uh that's probably Latin I'm I'm butchering I'd imagine. Ah uh El uh, Calablaster who we we've he's uh, been a, a frequent commenter before. He says First of all, I'm so excited, which is lovely. Um, all the little angels, despite its humor, makes me cry. Uh, always. Also, I once saw someone compare this to Les Miserables, but reversed with Carcer as Valjean and Vimes as Javert. Thoughts? Um, yeah. First of all, I should say, I, I've heard that comparison made as well, although I will a bit too much shame. I've never seen or read Les Mis, so I'm probably not the best one to make this comment, but I have heard it uh, expressed.
0: Yeah. I yeah I feel like this is going to be very disappointing for for him now. But unfortunately, I have never watched or read it either. But I have seen the comparisons made plenty of times. It seems like it's there, but I can't. Yeah, I'm the same. I wouldn't be the best person to ask about that comparison. Sorry about that, uh, dear listener. Uh, we're very disappointing in that sense. But, I've, um, I've heard
1: i've heard the described as lame is meets a tale of two cities which i haven't read either the <laughs> hard, hard times and A Christmas Carol are the only two dickens ones i've uh' I've read <laughs> but um but i i think it, what is it does seem deliberate it, it's like the pop fiction references in um the truth like it's you know pratchett rarely kind of completely you know homages or bases books or things but he often will have a sort of text that sort of runs under the surface that he's, you know, riffing off and paying tribute to, and, and that's yeah. here. Um here. Yeah. He also asked, hang on, i put a two uh, stop asking me about Twitter um, he said I'm never any good at coming up with these questions but here goes, what would you want left uh, on your grave as a memorial of you? And you can't say a hard-boiled egg
0: that's that's particularly that's grim. Uh, like if we were fighting in that battle, or just in general?
1: Yeah, <laughs> uh, just in general, I'd imagine. Uh, he gave it a good go. I don't know. <laughs> um, I think I think he means less your epitaph and more like the way the Keel has the egg is always on his grave. Oh, like that kind of thing. Okay. Yeah, uh, yeah. Like like a, a kind of memento. I, I may be wrong. He may mean the epitaph, but that was that was my interpretation of it.
0: Um, God, I don't know, uh, probably like a Nintendo 64 or something, <laughs> I don't know, I'm very nerdy, I, I don't think I really, I don't think I'd be worth putting anything
1: on my grave, to be honest with you. <laughs>
0: Jesus Steve, that's,
1: that's bleak, I don't agree with that, I mean, I, I plan for you to predecease me by quite some time, so I'll be sure to put something on your grave. You're too something good. good.
0: I appreciate that so much. I'd just be happy that, like, I don't even want an epitaph. I just want, like, lots and lots of people to come and take selfies and put it on Instagram, like, uh, beside my grave. Like, that'd just be perfect for me. That'd be the highest honor
1: that I could receive. (laughs) Um, Well, I don't plan to have a grave because I'm never going to die. Uh, I've been successful in this so far. Um, (laughs) I'm beating out the majority of people who've ever lived. No, well, uh, mainly because I I would uh, uh, plan to be cremated um but uh I don't know if, if there had to be something um mmm hmm.
0: I'd probably steal something that I saw from uh, the internet there a little while ago. It says, "When I die, I want my remains to be spread around Disney World. Also, I don't want to be cremated." <laughs> <laughs> so if I could, I, I, I that's what I want. <laughs> yeah, um, I don't know. Uh,
1: probably, it's like, a hard it's a hard
0: one yeah. to you know. Once you're faced with your own mortality, it's kind of hard to think about what physical items you would
1: want you know to commemorate yourself. Um, well, I'm thinking too, I mean, it's not like, you know, when you, you'd. Uh, I've had the conversation more about like what song would play at your funeral, but if you're leaving something on like a hypothetical gravestone or even, you know, buy a, a plaque or something, uh, you'd want it to be something not very valuable, like the hardball leg. Like you wouldn't put down, you know, your favorite book because you wouldn't just like leave it there by the grave someone could take it, but also like it would... Sp- sort of be a waste you know you kind of want something that's like evocative but also throwaway to a degree
0: uh a spray bottle of lynx africa <laughs> <laughs> well, I, mean, I can't I mean, beat that <laughs> no i'm, uh, I'm, I'm, just, I'm stumped
1: <laughs> yeah uh that's that's as good as you're gonna get from us Stephen. He, he just also said i don't know what else to say about this book other than the rules and i need to read it again soon sentiments which i wholeheartedly agree with
0: yeah um, i really i really really do i mean there. It, it is kind of one of those books that you kind of find yourself at a bit of a loss of what to say about it because it's just a really well put together book you know so
1: there's not much more to say about it than that <laughs> uh atalanta um Pendrigan said it continues to be a damn good time for this book and i'm just seeing where they're based at. i don't know but uh I don't know if it was um, if that's a commentary on like uh, comparing Winder to like Boris Johnson and or Donald Trump. But um, I think it's always a good time for Nightwatch and in times of political strife and unrest, even more so. Yeah,
0: obviously. Yeah. So I suppose uh, in our current climate, it's probably at its best point to read this book because you can relate so strongly to the events that are taking place in it.
1: Sir Sarah Dudley at Sarah Dudley 41 asked is Carcer the most despicable villain imaginable any other contenders from Discworld or elsewhere? Uh say that again? Is Carcer the most despicable villain imaginable any other contenders from Discworld or elsewhere? Despicable? I'm not sure if I would
0: say despicable per se. I mean like he's he's a really really fascinating character. He's very realistic, but despicable i'm not certain if i'd say it's you might consider him despicable because because he is so realistic but um i feel like there's other characters who have done worse things than he has i don't know what do you think
1: yeah um like he's definitely i mean that again that relatability perhaps makes him come across as more despicable like you can compare him to say like serial killers or you know, mass shooters or something in real life, like yeah, you, you, um, uh, and maybe that makes him like his his villainy more visceral and more raw. Um, for me, for me, it's less that done. Like, while those people do arouse my disgust and you know contempt and like desire to see them justice done, uh, like the, the people who tend to like, uh, I suppose get, like I would. Uh, stoke more of my, like, ire and um, venomous feelings against them would be more people who are, like, facilitating injustice but, like, keeping their hands clean. Like, someone like... I don't know. Like, like, like your man, like... like Well, he's not hands clean anymore. He's in jail now. But someone like your man, Martin Shkreli, who, like, you know, up the price of these... Uh, sort of, like, medication by a huge amount to make money? Or, like, you know, people who are running companies where they're... Uh, they have, like... All those people who run Apple, like where in China, you know, you have, they have factory workers where they have to put nets outside to prevent them from killing themselves because their working conditions are just that bad. But, you know, they're carrying on uh, making huge amounts of money for it. I think I see people like Carcer are slightly less despicable because probably probably because they gain less, you know, even though mm-hmm. Carcer does do very well in the past. Whereas the, like, like the winders of it who are the ones at the top of the tree are the ones who I would... Um, you know, dislike even more. Although, strangely, maybe we don't see enough of Winder in this one, but he doesn't, like, while well, like, I hardly like him or anything, he doesn't arouse my uh, discontent and, and um, anger in similar ways because he seems so paranoid that he's not enjoying it, you know?
0: Yeah. Uh, so, so I, I me, it would, it
1: would be more like someone who's. Um, doing incredibly inhumane things but getting away with it because they're nominally working within some system or, or finding the holes within that system and there's less of a sense that they'll get punished you know um, I go, whenever I, I go and uh, to, uh, to, it's a really weird thing that I sort of have to probe my, my own feelings on but whenever I go to these true crime rabbit holes and read about like you know serial killers and so on um, obviously the only ones you hear about is the ones that get caught so I suppose what, what I'm saying is something of a, a self-fulfilling prophecy um, but, but you know they do end up getting getting caught and punished in some way there's this weird feeling of like the ones who kill themselves in prison or, or they shoot out from police you feel like there's a sense of justice denied you know um, mm. but even despite that those ones they're you know they're still getting killed or, or whatever else uh, or incarcerated for, for life um, and so there's, there's this sense that like as horrible as it is that like they go around killing people like carcer does something's going to come back to stop them sooner or later whereas the people who are more uh creating like systemic violence you know where they don't act, they aren't actually directly involved but they're the ones driving and benefiting from it I, I find them more despicable in this sense so in terms of this world um i don't know like like Maybe the the auditors of, of reality, but but they again they don't seem to get, get any joy from it. I suppose going back to the Song of Ice and Fire thing, uh, when she says any other contenders for Discord or elsewhere, I would think of someone as like like Littlefinger in Song of Ice and Fire, um, like that because you know he's just kind of. Driving a lot of things along, keeping his hands clean, resulting in the, death, the deaths of so many people just for his own petty gain. He seems to really enjoy it. He seems to kind of get a kick out of it and constantly think he's the smartest person in the room. Um, so, yeah, someone like him or.
0: I guess the reason I don't think that Carcer is like. I mean, like, obviously he is, you know, fairly vicious and conniving, but like, I think the reason that I don't feel like he's one of the worst villains, like, in terms of like his maliciousness, is that. Well, there's plenty of moments where you can see that he enjoys, like, his cruelty. There's never a moment, I think, where you really see the full extent of his cruelty, where he's, like, really, really enjoying, like, being a horrible, horrible, horrible bastard, like, torturing somebody, like, psychologically or anything. Like, uh, I'm called to mind, I'm thinking of, I'm thinking again of Pan's Labyrinth, uh, that wonderful moment where... uh, the main antagonist of that film he tells his victim just before he starts torturing me, him he said like he notices oh you have a bit of a stammer there i'll tell you what if you can count to three without stammering i'll let you go free and the guy agonizes over it. And he gets to two but when he starts saying three he starts stammering and you can see his yeah like the smile just light up your man's face and he's just like well tired look and then he just hits him with a hammer and you're like, oh, my God, this is like the most vicious, cruel thing you could do. And like Carcer doesn't really have that moment, you know, like he's he's a bastard. Sure enough, like he is like, you know, he does he does what he's like, but he doesn't have that moment that really examines the full extent of how cruel he could be. And that's why I don't think that he is the worst that you'll ever come across.
1: Yeah. And um, I've two examples here, just for anyone looking elsewhere, for really, really horrible villains. I recently listened to... Um underbridge uh stephen king's different seasons his collection of uh, four novellas um so both of kurt dusander and uh what's his name todd bowden in apt pupil uh, have you read that one no no can't say no it, it, oh, well you didn't spot too much to say the premise but it's essentially about a a young seemingly kind of like all-american lovely young boy who discovers an elderly uh, neighbor is actually like a concentration camp guard who's on the run under a different name and he's fascinated by the holocaust and he just keeps getting your man to relive um, and share all of his memories of the things he'd done during the holocaust and the two of them then just basically end up in this kind of like mutually destructive tango as they kind of become worse and worse and escalate their violence and their uh, um, (laughs) they're like loathsome acts throughout it it's yeah, they're both horrible, but that's that's well r- worth reading. Um, the other one is uh, I've been reading a collection of short stories by um, James Tiptree Jr., alias Alice Sheldon, that I got at uh, Worldcon. Um high, belated high to anyone who's at Worldcon 2019. It's a great time. Uh, but I, wa- I wa- don't want to spoil too much at all, but um, The Screwfly Solution by James Tiptree is one of the most blood-curdlingly chilling stories I have ever read. Uh, the ultimate villains in that, and indeed any of the people who have be construed as villainous throughout, are like, um, yeah, utterly, utterly horrifying. Um, in to yeah, to a, a bone-chilling degree. So without spoiling too much, here, read the screwfly solution and uh, have a warm drink and a good friend nearby afterwards. Okay,
0: fair enough. That sounds sounds like a horrible time. So I'd probably
1: enjoy it. The best kind Uh, of horrible time. Yeah. So lastly, in in the Twitter comments, we have Wizard of the White I've had a a bit of a thread here. He said, there's a lot going on in the book. I could go on for a very long time. However, I'll save some of my thoughts until the podcast, as I'm sure you'll shed uh, some new light in it, as you always do, and give me even more to think on. Thanks. Uh, So he said, stories of revolution usually focus on leaders and the like. Maybe they're normal people when they start, but they're full revolutionaries by the end. Here, they're all just regular folks mostly trying to stay out of trouble and keep their neighborhood safe. Um, and, I mean, you so right about that. I think a great strength of this is how we only get little bits of the people at the top of the revolution, but there's still a sense of consequence to the book. You know, you would think if you, like, you try to write a story like this where you're depicting a big historical event, like a revolution, but not focusing on the people who are driving that event, mm. the, the, the characters will lack agency and it will be dull, but the... Pratchett manages to pull it off so well. Um, He says, The whole story is terribly bittersweet, tragic feel to it, even more so reading it the second time as I recently did. Like Vimes, you remember how everything happened and you desperately want it to happen differently even as you see it happening again in front of you. Absolutely. Uh, Try as he might, Vimes wasn't able to save even one of those poor men. And in the bigger picture i get a chill every time i read mad lord snap case after reading about mad lord winder of the book my heart broke a little more when there were still seven graves yet also he did manage to serve as a good example to himself i've seen firsthand how new people in any group take their cues from leadership so i understand how important it was for sam to see at least one good leader in the watch even if only for a short time my favorite part is after Vimes has arrested someone mentionables Knocks scared and tells Vimes they'll get in trouble. Vimes tells them they're in trouble anyway and they just decide, need to decide what kind they want. I find that perspective inspiring in a slap in the face sort of way. There's so many other bits I like. Lord Winder's publicly private assassination was brilliant. I liked almost all of the young veterinary stuff. In fact, especially the book. Uh, the, the book of Lord Wind Stanley Gripple Pipe. Uh, Carcer was delightfully evil, even though I wanted a bit more from him. More quotes than I could shake a stick at. Thoughts?
0: Uh, Yeah, I do find it interesting about the uh, having characters who, uh, you know, who don't have a lot of agency towards the end. Uh, I mean, technically, you could say Vimes does because, yeah, he is on the ground floor, so to speak, when like the revolution is happening. But technically, by the end, when he returns to his own time, he is a duke. I know that like in a way, those are kind of two
1: separate stories in a way. Um, yeah, like it doesn't really uh, yeah. have it, 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 much it's technica- help much in the conflict in, in, the, in the book, you know? Like he's not, in terms of the events,
0: yeah, yeah, the events of the revolution, I, yeah, yeah. 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 But uh, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I think that Carcer was there just the right amount. I don't think I really did want any more from him. I think he was... Well,
1: I mean, you, you're, you're, well, you didn't say you needed it, but you, you mentioned that he's less despicable because we don't see him reveling in his uh, villainy yeah, quite tr- as much. Would you have liked to have seen that?
0: um no i am actually quite happy with how much carcer is in the book i don't think i would want to see too much more because then i feel like he might become a little bit too melodramatic and more like the previous villains i like him as he is now almost like a nobody and every man because i think that works in the books everywhere
1: we're all a little like carcer
0: yeah well you know what i mean like you know and every villain you know like a standard like you know uh, crook or bully or bastard you know not someone who's got like an insidious backstory and like who has an evil ultimate agenda to make the world better just someone who's a bastard and simple as yeah those would be my main thoughts how about you
1: yeah well as i said i mean I, it, it's so much you said is what we touch on throughout like that Bittersweet feel of you know, a horrible sense of inevitability as you know what's going to happen, and you're you know, which is both in the case of if you're reading it the first time, because it's it's um excuse me, telegraph of the seven graves that Colin and Nobby visit, but when you're reading it again, there's that sense of inevitability uh, about it, too. It's sort of it, it's like when, when we've done Men at Arms, I said that uh, on reread, um, oh, God, Cody's Death. Uh, touched me a lot, because you know how much all of the other characters in the book are going to go on to do, and reading it you really feel like, oh, he could have been along for the ride, you know, with Tritus and Colon and Angua and Carrot and Vimes and the rest, uh, but he's, he's cut short, and that's, that's like the case with all of these um, guys uh, with Nancebo and Wiglet and Ned Coates and you know, Snouty and uh, Dickens Um. Yeah, yeah, uh, and that, that sentence about, like, I, I forgot about that, but we're in trouble anyway, we just need to decide what kind of trouble we want, sort of, like, like finding some sort of agency amid panic, like, amid uh, threat is, is really good, too, it's a really <clears throat> good quote to pull, yeah, so very, very
0: to be Staying in like this state of chaos and, but like to also have your own you know your moral standpoint like you know you could be in trouble but you could also be morally like you know happy with yourself you're ethically happy with yourself like and you're going to be in trouble either way but you might as well be happy with how you've acted as opposed to be in trouble and acting in a way that you don't find ethically ethically correct yeah I think that's a good one good point as well
1: yeah it's like, I mean it stands for the whole sense of restraining the beast and having an inner conscience that Vimes us throughout of like you know, what are you in the dark, even if no one else is watching, even if you can get away with it, even if it will hurt you to go against it, you know, like, or uh, it will hurt you to do it, do you do the right thing, you know, um, mm. and even when the right thing isn't going to have much of an impact, like, it's just going to be a, a gesture uh, against, like, tides that you just can't hold back, mm. you know, do you try and do it anyway, um yeah, it's, it speaks to the whole part, so really and spot on thoughts from Wizard of the White Tulip, at the Tulip Wizard there, for anyone who wants to follow him on Twitter.
0: Absolutely. Thank you very much for the, the, the. These are all like really, just like, I think we should take a moment just to like say thank you for everybody who sends in comments oh, and everything absolutely. as well, yeah, because yeah. they're always really rock solid and they like spark really interesting like conversations between, you know, Well, for us anyway, they're, I think they're very interesting and like yeah, no, really absolutely. valuable insights.
1: So thanks very much for every, every, everything that you guys send in. Really, really appreciate it. Yeah, it really broadens the conversation, enriches the conversation. It's it's great. Um, it gets us thinking in ways we may not have thought before. Uh,
0: so usually the way we do this is we look for the ones that like the last uh, vimes one, the last witches one that we feel is closest, and go from there. Uh, so I don't know about you, but I feel I think very very highly of this book. So I'm kind of rating this against the fifth element elephant at the moment. So what would be your opinion? Which is better between this and the fifth elephant?
1: Um, so I have a note here in between my note about the, uh, the scenes of the major and the captain illustrating the banality of evil and the yeah, note about it confirming that it happens at the concurrently with of time. I have a note that simply reads, this is the best book. <laughs> I don't know when I wrote that, but I wholeheartedly stand by it. This is the best book. This is the best Discworld book. This is one of the best books, period, I have ever read. Um, I was trepidatious to go back to it and read it in full for the first time after loving the abridged audio from, like, years and years ago when I was a teenager, um, and it's... Yeah, it's, 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 it's absolutely incredible. It's characterization, it's plotting, it's sense of stakes, it's tone, the ideas it raises, it's emotional force... Um, I mean, maybe, maybe you could argue it's not as funny as some of the other Discworld books. Uh, Even though there are funny bits, I I do love the um, (laughs) "You will not shoot me, you idiot!" That would be murder. Not where I'm aiming, sir. And you know exactly (laughs) where he's aiming. (laughs) Um, But, uh, um, but you know, who the fuck cares? Because it's yeah, it's got plenty of funny bits anyway, and um, it makes up for it in every every other respect. Uh, it's the best. If we're comparing with Fifth Elephant, I think it goes above Fifth Elephant. I think it goes above Lords and Ladies. I think this is number one.
0: Um, part of me wants to, you know, try and be devil's advocate a little bit here and like compare to you know some of the better elements of Lords and Ladies and the Fifth Elephant. But truth be told, Column, I think this is going to be one of the shortest arguments we're ever going to have because I think I agree with you. <laughs> I think this probably is like the best Discworld book, almost undoubtedly.
1: Yeah, yeah, um, I'm looking forward to some of the ones I haven't read or haven't read for a long time coming up. I'll be very surprised if anything tops this. It's Just, just while we're on it, I mean, we, we're both in full agreement here, but I suppose, you know, for the sake of parsing out our thought process for anyone who, you know, hasn't read it in a while or feels differently, um, it, Lords and Ladies are actually birds of a feather in a way, in that they both kind of culminate the, uh, like, watch and witch arcs very well, and they both, while, again, you can read them standalone and enjoy them, they... Benefit hugely from you being familiar with the earlier books and kind of playing off uh, your expectations and what's being established in those. Yeah, and, and you could argue that Lords and Ladies has, like, is better in the sense of it isn't like just a Granny Weatherwax book in a way that this is mainly a Vimes book. You know, like uh, McGrath and, um, in fact, particularly McGrath, but also Nanny Hogg have a lot to do in Lords and Ladies. But for one, as I said, reading this, I was pleasantly surprised by. How good of a job it does of using all of the other what supporting cast in the the early in the the early and end bits um in the present of Ankh-Morpork. uh secondly the Vimes's supporting cast of the past is terrific wonderful mm. um and considering so many of them are either people we haven't met before or earlier versions of people we have met mm. it's really impressive that that is pulled off in that way yeah, uh, and just by vimes' Uh, as a central character like it's yeah brilliant um he goes on a journey that kind of like validates um him as a, as a person as like his conscience and his resolve and his sense of justice um but also caused him to question uh, a lot of his feelings his feelings of himself as, a, as an underdog and an outsider when he's in the aristocracy, his feelings of nostalgia for old, Hank um, morpork kind of his feelings of like what the law is about. You know, he's defined himself more than anything else as a copper. We have that bit in Men in Arms when veterinary uh, sort of pre- hopes to goad him into action by sacking him, but actually just. Goads him into, you know, going off the, falling off the wagon and drinking again because he can't cope with the idea of of life when he's not uh, a copper. And here we have him questioning what that means when you're not in uh, an. Like, well, not an ideal Ankh Morpork, but like the relatively benevolent ty- tyranny of Vetinari of in the, the present day of the series. It really puts his ideas through the ringer. And again, because if you're reading this after having read all of the other watchbooks, it puts all of our, you know, ideas through the ringer, all of our conceptions of who Vimes is, what the watch is, what Ankh Morpork is.
0: Yeah, it definitely gets to the core of his character and we've long held Vimes up as probably the pinnacle of the Terry Pratchett's writing when when he writes characters. So the the fact that he goes through such an interesting arc from Guards Guards all the way up to the Fifth Elephant and it feels like it reaches his peak at that point, it's amazing. Like nothing short of amazing that not only does it manage to further that arc, but feel like The absolute apex of that arc, you know, to feel like this is the moment that's all been culminating to, even though it in like on paper, it does sound a bit like, you know, uh, you know, Mr. Vimes goes on holiday. Like it should be this little kind of spin off kind of book. But instead, like it is a really Raw examination of his character. It's revolutionary in that, uh, revolutionary because it's a revolution, but also Mm -hmm. because, um, you know, it's very different from the older books. Like you said, it's not as funny as many of the older books, and it's also doesn't have nearly as much of a fantasy element, which is what the Discworld. That was one of the Discworld's main strengths, these fantastical elements, and it almost shirks them completely. So it shows the strength of the writing without relying on like that little quirk. So it definitely beats out The Fifth Elephant. Lords and Ladies, yes, those two, they do have a parallel of sorts because Lords and Ladies examined Granny Weather- Weatherwax's arc in probably the most pure form. Uh, but I would have to give it to this one simply because, you know, as I said, it is revolutionary. It do- in Lords and Ladies, we see Granny Weatherwax's arc, um, how it continues to basically her apex. It does continue on into Carpe Jugalum, but uh, that's her high point. Uh, but I'd give it to Nightwatch simply because uh, it's it shows you know how adept uh, or how adaptable Terry Pratchett is, that he can change his style of writing uh, to something more interesting. He's flexible and... Quite frankly, as you said already, the themes here are richer, you know, whereas Lords and Ladies, there's there's kind of an underlying subtext about like, you know, image and like how people view you and that's interesting enough in itself even if it is kind of a hypothetical thing but Nightwatch it's political and it goes into ethics and morality and the nature of reality there's a huge amount going on here and there have been other books that have dealt with this sort of thing before but none of them have been enjoyable as this and also it has Carcer who is my favorite villain so I think I think you're right, Colm. I think that this is going to be an easy one. I think that Watch is Terry Pratchett's best book. I would put that on top of our list, and I don't care who
1: knows it. Yeah, uh, I were wholeheartedly um, in agreement on this one. Nightwatch, number one, with a bullet, with all the bullets, with all the ammunition just spilling out on the ground, like that Rambo parody scene from Hot Shots 2. Um, Nightwatch is the toppermost of the poppermost
0: <laughs> it's funny how we disagreed on so many and we were so agonizing over all of them but the one that matters we're like yeah no this is pretty easy
1: <laughs> great minds think alike fools always differ but some fools occasionally think alike we are those fools so thanks very much for listening everyone thanks for those of you who've gotten in touch with us and um, so you can find a podcast on on itunes on podcast addict on soundcloud on uh, lots of various uh, podcasting platforms. If you want to get in touch with us, you can follow us on Twitter at Radio Park. You can find us on Facebook if you search for Radio Park. You can email us, park at gmail.com. Um, you can find our website. It is uh, radiomorpork.wordpress.com. Um, or, yeah, that's about it. Or, I mean, if you, if you want, obviously we always welcome people getting in touch on uh, Twitter on, on Facebook to enrich the conversation if you would like to give us a review on whatever podcast uh, service you use that'd be that'd be lovely we've had some lovely ones in the past um, that was a great way to spread the word so yeah that that, that about takes care of that Chinna and we will close this out and see you next time for the we free men <laughs> the
0: goodbye. new number one
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: okay goodbye everyone and thank you very much for listening.
1: But I thought i going to be very careful here not to get too, you know, too relaxed. It's